The following is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. What's up, everybody? This is the Dirty Daddy, Chris Dickinson here, and you are listening to Keeping It Strong Style. Yo, this is Rich Ladder from One Nation Radio. This is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. We present to you the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Let's go. It's the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Covering New Japan, they ready to hold it down. Jeremy Donovan and the young boy Josh. Come and hit a job out in Barrio the Frost. From Tokyo Dome over to the G1. Social Suplex is the network where we can get it done. I'm a chiller. And let them have it Cause this is just an intro Keeping the strong style Six stars from the get-go, boy Yeah, from Tampa Bay to the Tokyo Dome This is Keeping It Strong Style With your hosts, Jeremy Donovan And the young boy, Joshua Smith And thank you for listening Welcome to Keeping It Strong Style The ace of podcasts on the Social Suplex Podcast Network Jeremy Donovan here with the young boy, Josh Smith on today's show, we're reviewing Summer Struggle in Osaka and Nagoya, Russell Grand Slam, answering listener questions, and covering all this news in the world of New Japan Pro Wrestling. You can support our show by subscribing and following the Social Suplex Podcast Network or keeping it strong style on the podcast app of your choice and leaving a rating interview. You can also get all the podcasts and columns over at socialsuplex.com. Check out our Wrestling Tea store, wrestlingtees.com. Slash Social Suplex, that's where you can get your official Keeping It Strong style t-shirt. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation by visiting socialsuplex.com slash donate and click on the donate button under the Keeping It Strong style logo. This episode is brought to you by the NJPW EXT, the only browser extension for NJPWworld.com with features like dark mode. Improved translations and layouts, custom and shared playlists, synchronized viewing parties, and much, much more. It takes NJPW World to the next level. You can visit NJPWEXT.us today for details. Young boy, how you doing, man? Let me just start by saying, if you're listening right now to this podcast, you know, you hear Jeremy go through the intro, you hear him give the plugs, you get him every week. Well, this is the week where I challenge you, the listener, the subscriber, the downloader, to go out and do something. I don't care what it is. You want to buy a shirt from us? Cool. You want to throw us a donation? Cool. You want to just leave us a rating or review? That's cool. But you need to go do something because me and Jeremy have been putting in overtime work. And I know that the majority of you listening did not watch every single one of these fucking summer struggle shows <laughs> this past week, okay? All right, so let's crack one open and take a swig <laughs> for the working man, okay? Me and Jeremy, and, you know, help us get paid, you know? CTC, cut the check, because this week was rough. <laughs> yeah, man, we, we <laughs> have... Actually, it, it really wasn't. It was actually great wrestling, but... Yeah, it, it's just uh, time-consuming, man. Yeah, we have uh, five shows that we have to review, and then we have a ton of shows that are up on the docket that are coming well, up. six, including Strong. I think uh, it's five, including Strong, right? Because we had uh, two Summer Struggles in Osaka, Nagoya, Grand Slam's four, Strong is five. Oh, that's right. You know what? That was just me. There was 
there one of the shows that you reviewed on your own. I went back and uh, did a little catch up. So I, yeah, I was counting that on my own docket. Gotcha. Yeah, then we got stuff but, happening in AEW. We got stuff happening in Impact. Yeah, man. I mean, at this point, like, it's like you want to follow, bro. I remember when we first started this podcast. You know, on the eve of 2018. You know, and um, we were talking about, man. I don't know. Like, I guess for every now and again, we might need to jump into some uh, Ring of Honor. We might need to jump into some Red Pro. Well, now, bro, you have to fucking watch. Like, I don't know. Like. GCW on the boardwalk to like keep up with what's going on. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean we're gonna get to the point where we have to pull like a Jericho and Jr. and do like two podcasts a week. It's like you know what's gonna happen. You guys gonna make me jump on Twitch and watch some like Guadalajara like Triple A like what the fuck? <laughs> gonna have to watch like Vikingo wrestle Umora. If you really want to be like up to date on everything, you actually would need to be watching like. Impact and AEW and Rev Pro at the very least. Like and but and then you know obviously Strong plus all the New Japan shows. Like that's a lot, dude. Yeah, it's a lot. Unless you yeah, if you don't have the time for it, yeah, I can definitely understand. You know, cherry picking, picking and choosing what you want to watch. But you know, oh, I definitely am. Yeah, but you know, we <laughs> I, I think we did a good job of watching majority of everything here and. We're going to run through it, man, but I think first we should probably start off with the IWGP US title change that happened last week on Dynamite. We had the rematch from Wrestle Kingdom for the US title, Texas Death Match, the Murder Hawk Monster, Lance Archer defeats John Moxley, 13 minutes, 24 seconds, title change. Also, we had Hikaleo. Showing throughout the, the crowd, throughout the show. And it was announced that he would face the winner of the match. And then post-match, he came out, had the, the big face-off with Lance Archer. So tomorrow night on Dynamite, we got Lance Archer versus Hikaleo for a title. And we had a question from Dom Hody 101 Any thoughts on Lance Archer winning the IWGP US Heavyweight Championship against Sean Moxley on last week's episode of AEW Dynamite? Thoughts on his next defense? And is it possible that we may see another new IWGP US champion on this upcoming episode of Dynamite? Um, Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, um, you know, first thing I want to say, really enjoyed this match. Um, I I don't know if I was as into this match as I was the initial Tokyo Dome one. Uh, For me, there's just something special about the ambiance of, of a proper you know, January 4th, Tokyo Dome show. Yeah. Um, but the match still delivered, man. And I mean, in the main event, they, they did a lot more than I thought they're going to do. It, it's kind of crazy with AEW, like sometimes with some of these like deathmatch elements on TNT, like they really push the bar and I'm, I'm always thinking that they're going to like swing, like, you know, at, like under their weight and then they, they end up like punching way above their weight class like yeah and i'm like i'm like oh my god like, <laughs> the sponsors like cool with this like some of some of those main event matches they've had on tv like while i've loved them i'm like man they're getting a lot of juice and we got double juice in this one and i'm like it's been a long yeah. time since i've seen stuff like this on national tv they're getting a lot of juice and they're also getting a lot of viewers you know last few weeks over a million viewers hitting big numbers in that 18 to 49 demo uh great numbers for dynamite and yeah this was a great main event 
Uh, I think it was on on the same level as the match they had in the Tokyo Dome. Obviously, different atmospheres, but I still thought it was as great. And I, I was looking back at the grapple ratings. I feel like people really underrated the first match they had at Wrestle Kingdom. Uh, well, you know, that happens a lot at Wrestle Kingdom when you have uh, undercard matches that really deliver. They still tend to get underrated because they're being directly contrasted and compared to the higher end matches that end up happening on those shows, you know, in, in the main and semi-main event. And yeah, I thought that that match was like, I don't know, four and a quarter, four and a half ish. And I think most people like probably rate it around four stars. Yeah, um, I think which is, I guess the average is a little bit below four. Really? Well, you know, a lot of times past too. So I don't know. Um, but you know, the fan base for AEW is very rabid, so they ate this match up and really I did think that there was a few more spectacular big spots at the end, you know. Um, especially like with the chair and the, the barbed wire and all that. But you know, the big thing is last week we were kind of discussing like the trajectory of the of the uh IWGP United States Championship, what uh, you know, a win for either one of these guys would have meant going uh heading into res- excuse me, into resurgence. And um you know, uh, it was something that we definitely discussed that it was a possibility that Lance Archer could get the win here. But while I was, even though I feel like we discussed that ad nauseum last week, when, once we were watching the match, I was like, he's not going to win. And then, like, at the end, I was like, oh, my God, he won. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, it, it was crazy. Like, because I just felt like it, it would be right for Archer to win in his hometown. You know, he's lost to Moxley so many times. I just felt like it, it would have been right, but it just seems like New Japan just wanted to work with Moxley so much and kind of keep that belt on Moxley and have him have this epic reign. And him, you know, it being the AEW match, and, you know, Moxley is higher in the pecking order than Archer right now in AEW. So it just kind of made all sense for Mox to win, but at the same time, it makes sense for Archer to win. And I was happy that he got the win. Well, it's something that we talked about and discussed last week, and it's something we've been talking about the entirety of. John Moxley's title reign is like, you know, being in a pandemic with the travel restrictions and everything like that, it's made it very difficult to, um, you know, imagine a world where he's coming back and forth between New Japan and the U.S. to kind of defend that title. And then from a political standpoint, who can he even drop it to, given his stature in AEW, you know, and that was always a a problem. Once we saw that, once I saw it was going to be Archer and in Texas, and the fact that AEW's done a, a really good job trying to establish Archer as like a, a mega guy, you know, big monster, but he's never really had a big win, like a true, you know, defining title win or a feud ender or anything like that. I was like, this might be the time where they pull that trigger. And like Mox is so over at this point, like he can afford the loss and Archer is a former champion. So like in the kayfabe of both companies, it makes sense. And, you know, for better or worse, the way he beat him was somewhat akin to a count out because Moxley, while he definitely like, it was definitely legit. He was still able to probably get up, but he was stuck to a bunch of barbed wire. So it kind of gives him an out. It's not the same thing as like taking the blackout and then getting pinned one, two, three, or like the claw slam or whatever, you know, it's not the same. So he, he's even kind of protected, but at the same time, Archer beat him pretty definitively Right. You know, so it protects both guys, protects both the interests of both companies. 
And that was what we talked about last week. I was like, this is something where, like, he's the perfect transitional champion. Um, and I don't know if that means he'll hold the title for a week or seven months. I don't know. But when the time is ready, he, it's fine because he has had losses in AEW. So it's not like having a New Japan guy beat Mox. It's New Japan, a New Japan guy beating Lance Archer, which helps – you know, whatever talent New Japan they decide to go with to do that, but Archer can also handle it because he's, you know, he's an upper mid card guy. He's not a uh, main eventer just yet in, in AEW. So it, it, it makes sense for all the right reasons, and the match was great. And um, it really makes me wonder what we're getting when we head to Resurgence, and it makes me wonder what's happening with, you know, uh, Lance Archer and Hikaleo this week. Yeah, and, you know, lots of great callbacks from their Wrestle Kingdom match, especially with the finish, because the finish at the Dome was Moxley hitting the Death Rider off the apron uh, through tables that laid Archer out. And so kind of a little reversal here with Archer doing uh, the slam off the apron to Mox through the barbed wire uh, set up there that got Moxley stuck down there. So there was a, throughout the whole match, there was a ton of great callbacks through the first match, and Excalibur was great in pointing those out. Um, but you mentioned Resurgence, and we had a question here from Reddit user Just Ambrose. Who do you think Moxley's going to face at Resurgence? Out of all the names announced, the most probable match for him is a tag of Shota against the Good Brothers, which I hope is not the case. Well, uh, to go back to Dom Homie's question, just to answer it real quick, he asked, what's the, what are the chances that we could see a new champion this coming Wednesday? I'm going to put it at less than 5%, only because Hikaleo while he's been established on strong, in my opinion, he's still basically like a green guy, you know? And right. I, mean, he could, I can't he couldn't even imagine beat Fred Rosser. That, huh? That he couldn't even beat Fred Rosser. Right. Well, it's not even just that. I just can't imagine Tony Khan allowing, you know, um, Hikaleo to come onto his television program and beat the guy that beat the guy one week after, you know? Right. Uh, that just doesn't make a lot of sense to me business-wise. Right, if it was maybe somebody up higher up in the car, like if he had like maybe like a Suzuki or Ishii or somebody with a little bit bigger of a name that I could see doing a, a quick tile change. But yeah, if, if it being Hikaleo, still kind of in that young lionish kind of phase, and you know he hasn't been pushed super strong on strong. I mean, he has had some big wins, but you know recently losing that match to Fred Roster, I still think he's you know building himself up. That and the loss to um, Tom Waller. As or yeah, Tom Waller. Oh yeah, in the uh, the New Japan Cup, you'll say yeah. Sometimes, sometimes when I'm saying Tom Waller, I get confused with like Tom Hardy. I'm like, which one am I saying? Which guy's which? All right. <laughs> um, but to answer the question from Just Ambrose, um, yeah, I don't know what is next for Mox or for Archer. To be honest with you, but uh, we we already had Moxley announced for resurgence, so we're getting something with him, which is exciting and. You know, I wouldn't be opposed to that tag match, especially like I was before when the title was around his waist. Now that the title's off of him, they're free to do whatever they want to do. And I mean, I don't know, him and him and Shooter t teaming up sounds pretty fun to me. Uh, what I'm really wondering is what happens with the U.S. title? Is he even going to be featured on the show? Is it going to is Lance Archer going to be allowed to work resurgence? Because he's actually not announced and we have no proof to indicate just yet that he is for sure going to be on that show. Part of me is kind of hoping they do a rematch between him and Moxley at Resurgence 
which would be cool, but I don't know that uh, that that's something that uh, Tony Khan's going to allow them to do unless they're looking to switch the title back to Moxley, you know? And maybe this was just a, a feel-good short-term title reign. Yeah, I mean, all the stars were aligned, you know, big match uh, in Texas and, you know, Archer's hometown, so maybe they just wanted to do kind of a quick title change and then switch it back at Resurgence. I do think, yeah, doing a rematch probably would be the best option be a really cool thing for, you know, the people going to the show and to really give a big match for that U.S. title. But like you said, with if it's not to go a different direction, I think, you know, Mox and Shooter teaming up would be fine. I think a lot of people um, are kind of clamoring for that reunion. It's been a long time since we've seen those guys on screen together. So, I mean, that would be cool. And there is history of Mox and the Good Brothers. Uh, but there's, a, there's another likelihood, the very fact that Hick Leo is wrestling on AEW Strong or on uh, AEW Dynamite uh, indicates to me that there is a high likelihood of Bullet Club intervention mm. or maybe even possibly um, uh, Gorillas of Destiny interference specifically. Mm. So there's a good chance we could get like Archer versus um, King Haku for the U.S. title. <laughs> and who wouldn't want to see that, you know? Oh, my gosh. Oh, <laughs> the or... fuck is Haku's problem? <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I don't know. I mean, um, you know, I, I'm just kind of thinking about, like, who who's in the Bullet Club that's nearby. And I'm like, is it possible we wind up with, like, a, a Tamatonga – like Lance Archer match at Resurgence. I, I don't think that's outside of the realm of possibility. That's a possibility. And when you mentioned G.O.D. initially, I was thinking maybe Mox and Shooter versus G.O.D. That's possible, too. And then I, I also thought, like, they could go the other route and just go six-man tag. Oh, um... And any combination of whoever. G.O.D. You know, and Hikaleo versus Mox, Shooter, and somebody? There's all sorts of options, so Yeah. <laughs> So who knows? I don't know what, what they're doing. Um, we also had a question from um, Viking Pain. He asked, what are the odds New Japan went up to Tony Khan and said, we're going to have Mox drop the U.S. belt at Resurgence? And Khan replied, that doesn't work for me, brother. I put it at 80%, but do you get the feeling that Archer would be a transitional champion and that he'd be the one to drop the belt instead? Uh, I don't think that was the case. So there was actually um, a tweet from Archer that kind of teased that uh, something big was happening with him like a while ago, like, a, like a, it was like a couple months ago. He was like, I can't say anything, but I'm super excited to work for AEW or something like that. And so kind of, it was kind of hinting that like something cool was about to happen. And so I feel like this, the other thing. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I feel like this, this change was kind of in the plans, especially, you know, after uh, Tony Khan's promo talking about how he had plans for the U S right. title. That's exactly what I was uh, going to get to, you know, as hokey and kind of goofy as those Tony Khan, Nick Khan promos were, you know, the guy seemed pretty confident that they had long term plans, him in New Japan, and a lot of them, re you know, um, revolve around the US title. So, you know, to me, like at this point right now, like the US title is basically at this point and this could change at any moment, but for right now, it's like the IWGP TNT title, basically. Like, <laughs> you know, they're kind of like letting letting them do business with that belt as a make good. And, you know, it's kind of like crazy. Like if I'm Ring of Honor, Ring of Honor is cooked, bro. If I'm Ring of Honor and then like, I'm just fuming, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. 
if Ring of Honor should, uh, you know what they should do? They should um, take their balls and put them out on the table and say Blau, and just like partner with fucking like Cyber Agent. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or someone, All yeah. Japan, whoever they actually can. I don't know. Maybe Big Japan. Maybe Freedoms. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but somebody, because at this point, like, you know, it's like their their hot boyfriend just like walked out on them. It's like you know maybe they should uh you know pull up and uh, post some pictures on the gram you know <laughs> let New Japan know what what they're missing you yeah. know. And uh, on today's uh, road to building up uh, tomorrow's dynamite, Excalibur was talking about you know seeing the U.S. title so much just tells you how good the relationship is between uh, New Japan and AEW. So I mean they're they're saying this stuff on camera now. Well, it's very evident. So yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's pretty crazy. But um, we can move on. Uh, Kyle Martin asked a couple questions. Uh, he said, "Are there any travel restrictions that would keep Archer or Hikaleo from returning to Japan relatively soon to move forward with New Japan proper booking and angles?" And and you know the answer to that, Jeremy. I actually don't know what the travel situation in Japan is. Obviously, COVID is still a huge concern there. But I don't know what the rules are for individuals that are vaccinated going to Japan right now. Right. I know they were working on the whole like vaccination passport thing. And I know at one point that, you know, um, you had to have a active visa to be able to go over, which is part of the reason why a lot of strong guys haven't been able to go over. So I don't know if what the visa situation is for either of these guys. I would think maybe Hikaleo would probably be good and maybe not Archer. So that could be probably holding them back. Maybe, but Archer was working for them and had a visa before, so I don't know. Yeah, I still don't know if it expired or not, or if it expired before COVID happened or what the deal was there. But um. Yeah, it's, it's hard to know what's going on. Um, he also asked with the unexpected title switch, do either of you see Moxley going for an immediate rematch, or was this a way to relieve Mox of his New Japan responsibilities? I mean, from everything I've heard from Mox and in several interviews and articles and stuff that he does, he always wanted to work for New Japan. He loves New Japan. He's enjoyed his experience there. And, you know, the plan pre-COVID was to be going back and forth between both companies, and he was going to probably have a ton of defenses with that U.S. title in 2020. So I don't think he's New Japan responsibilities are going to be done for now. Um, I just think... Well, they could be. I mean, he did just have a child, you know, and the even though the travel schedule isn't the craziest with AEW, the, the very fact that they're not in Jacksonville every week anymore, now they're, you know, they are going to be, you know, going different places, plus the Friday show uh, with Mayhem or whatever it's called. That, Rampage. Is that what it's called, May? Rampage. Huh? Rampage. Rampage. Rampage, Mayhem, it's all the same shit. Um you know, that might make it difficult for him to kind of fulfill obligations with New Japan. At the same time, this might just be him taking a, a brief hiatus. And then when he's ready and they're ready, they can bring him back, you know, just like Jericho. Jericho's always waiting in the in the, uh, in the the wings. Like, you know, I, I doubt he's, quote, unquote, done with New Japan. I mean, neither of them have a contract in place, but that doesn't mean that, like, they're done, you know, like – and neither one of them need a title to work for that company, their name value alone, you know? Right. And as of right now, uh, Jericho's profile is still up on the, the active roster page. So obviously that they're probably playing a do business with Jericho 
once he yeah, gets so there. so are the uh, Briscoe brothers. So hey, <laughs> maybe maybe they're plan- brand to bring them in for tag league this year. So is Jay Lethal, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so is Flip Gordon, you know. I mean, Flip Flip was on strong. <laughs> Flip, um, have either of you heard or read anything on Mox's contract status with New Japan? Yeah, he doesn't have a contract. Yeah, it, it's, it's been a handshake deal this whole time, um, and so, yeah, no contract. Me and Jeremy are under a handshake deal. <laughs> with who? With each other? With each other. <laughs> and, and with the Social Suplex Podcast Network. <laughs> well, I think that uh, pretty much wraps up all the stuff on the U.S. title. Uh, obviously, tomorrow, Archer, Hikaleo, I'm going Archer retaining. We'll see if that match is even good. Um, I like both those guys. I've never really seen Hikaleo work with anyone the size of Archer. Um, so this would kind of be like a, a nice little proving ground or test for him, you know? Right. Plus, I don't think we've ever seen him work like, you know, I, well, obviously we've never seen him work live American hard cam television. So that's going to be different too. Right. So uh, moving on, let's start talking about what's going on in Japan. First, we've got to talk about Kota Ibushi. So as we were recording last week, the news came out that he was diagnosed with aspiration pneumonia, and he was pulled from Summer Struggle in Osaka both nights and Summer Struggle in Nagoya, and they were kind of pending to see if he would be able to make it to Wrestle Grand Slam. But then after uh, Russell, or Summer Struggle in Nagoya, the decision was made to pull Ibushi from Russell Grand Slam as well and have Hiroshi Tanahashi be his replacement. And we did have a question from Viking Pain. Said, any updates on Kota Ibushi? It seems like he's going to be missing shows up until possibly the G1. Uh, we haven't heard anything. I saw that he was tweeting a few nights before the Tokyo Dome show. He seemed to be in good spirits. And the thought at the time was that he would be recovered enough to perform uh, come, you know, uh, Wrestle Grand Slam. But alas, that was not the case. And aside from that, I haven't really seen any updates uh, except for just, you know, that they were trying to put the, the wrestler's health first. I mean, I don't even think there's a timetable right now for when he's coming back or even how serious this situation even was, you know? Yeah. And I mean, for Kota Ibushi of all people to have to miss shows, I definitely think it sounds pretty serious. I mean, it's just in uh, new Japan in general, I think missing shows uh, a situation is very serious. And with him not being the next challenger uh, at the MetLife dome and not being on any of these summer struggle shows, it makes you really wonder like what, how his health is. And so, Hopefully he'll be ready in time. There's two dome shows in, in September. Hopefully he can make one of those or at least be ready after that for G1. Regardless, you know, um, pneumonia, very serious. Aspiration pneumonia can be uh, devastating, even deadly in some cases. So um, all best thoughts and wishes to Kotobushi, his family, and we hope that he makes a speedy recovery. Yeah, second on that. So let's uh, let's talk these uh, different shows. We got some summer struggle shows and uh, tag team turbulence, and uh, we we did a Tokyo Dome show Sunday. We did a lot, man. <laughs> yeah. So for summer struggle in Osaka and Nagoya, I think we can just read the results for the undercard and then focus on the semi main and main oh, event. I, I didn't watch those undercards. <laughs> I don't. I don't know what like. 
yeah, the stuff in Osaka. Yeah, I don't watch it. Nagoya, no, bro. We're talking the big matches. <laughs> yeah, and then we'll, we'll, we'll run through all of Tag Team Turbulence, and then we'll also run through all of the Wrestle Grand Slam card. So let's start with Summer Struggle in Osaka, night one. We had the show opening up with Doki, Despi, and Kanamaru defeating Eagles and Rapungi 3K. Then we had Ishii, Yoshihashi, and Tanahashi defeating Evil, Kenta, and Yujiro. Third matchup, we had Great Okan, Jeff Cobb defeating Hiroki Goto and Kazuchika Okada. Fourth matchup, we had... Yo, what's up with Goto and Okada? They're like the losingest like, tag team ever. <laughs> Well, they always lose. Well, Goto's washed, and so Okada can't carry the load by himself. I guess. Well, no, he's a six-man tag team champion. They're legendary. <laughs> Just stop it. Uh, fourth matchup, we had Bushi and Shingo defeating the team of Master Wato and Tomioka Hanma. I will say, Hanma did hit a really cool, like, uh, Kamigoye headbutt-looking move in honor of uh, Kota Bushi, and Hanma was kind of angling for a title match. Through these three shows. Yeah, that was the the one funny thing. They threw him in there um, as sort of like the replacement on the cards each night for the preview matches. And um, obviously, like, he's not actually getting a title shot in the Dome. But the, the, the mere fact that he's, you know, positioned in those matches would lead, like, someone who wasn't as knowledgeable to think maybe he could get a title shot. Yeah. And his statements in the backstage were hilarious. He's like... Why can't I have a title shot? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, would that be so wrong if Tomaki had a IWGP World Heavyweight title shot? Main event the dome. <laughs> Main event the dome. He's the modern day Bob Holly. Like, All right, uh, so Hama, um, what what ideas do you have? He's like, you put the belt on me. Uh, oh, okay. Well, once we do that, then what happens? I beat everybody. <laughs> It's probably more like this. I brought that belt on me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, anyways, let's move to the uh, semi and the main event. So, uh, on night one and night two, we had the singles competitors from the tag team of LIJ, Sonata, and Tetsuya Naito squaring off against the single competitors from Dangerous Techers, Zack Sabre Jr., and Tai Chi. So, kind of an unofficial round robin and i liked the way they presented this in a sense because kevin kelly really you know summed it up and kind of made it seem like you know these are not just simply preview matches but these are individuals from a collective team trying to prove that their wrestling style is the best you know Mm. and gain the upper hand leading into the tag match. So like the sum of their parts, when you add them all together, make a greater whole. And then even though these were singles matches, they were, they weren't just preview matches. They were like literally elevating the stature of the tag team titles at the Tokyo dome. And we saw that in the semi-main event. And I will say that I thought these matches, a were really good. We'll review them here in a second, but I also thought that they did a lot here to probably make that match on the Tokyo Dome show, probably the best built match of the entire night. Yeah, I have to agree with you there. They definitely put in a lot of work here, elevating these tag team titles, elevating these four guys. And like I said, all four of these matches are great. I have all four of these matches at four stars or above. Uh, I thought they did really good work here. So let's talk about the, the semi-main event here. On night one, we had Sonata 
taking on Zack Sabre Jr., ending in a draw, 24 minutes, 21 seconds. Both of these guys fighting for a pinfall here towards the end. Um, Sabre gets like a European clutch while Sonata had a double chicken wing. Uh, both shoulders were down. Retsu counts the uh, three, and yeah, we got a draw here. Yeah, um, really enjoyed this match. Um, every time Sonata and Zack Sabre lock up, we all kind of know what the deal is. They're two of the only guys on the roster that can go hold for hold in that, you know, catch as catch European style with one another. Um, they did go longer in this match than I think the majority of the matches they've ever had with each other in the past. Cause most of them have been like G one style matches on undercards. Mm-hmm. Uh, for that reason, there was a, a, sm- a short period in the match where Zach kind of took over and was kind of doing the, Zach eats up his opponent uh, portion of the match. And I wasn't a big fan of that aspect. I would have preferred that the story remain what it was all throughout that, you know, they're going hold for hold toe to toe the whole time and neither can get the better of each other. Right. Cause I but, think um, that's kind of the whole story, the rivalry, like I can do anything right. you can do. And so you had Saber targeting like uh, Sonata's arm and then uh, Sonata would target Ching or Saber's leg and they were kind of both do the same type of stuff, except two different body parts. And here's another great thing. You know, sometimes people complain about, you know, body part selling and stuff like that. And sometimes it's warranted, sometimes it's not. But in this case, uh, I picked up on the leg uh, attack from Sonata on night one as well. And that wound up being a crucial focal point of the entire feud here. So that was kind of great. Um, I liked this match a lot. This was my match of the night. A lot of people disagree. I think that most people have the main event. I think the only reason, in my opinion, that most people fell flat on the match at the end was because it did end in a draw. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that was deflating for a lot of people. But I think bell to bell, this was the better in-ring action of the two matches. Yeah, I, I think I like the main event just a little bit better. So I went four stars flat on this match. Uh, I thought the wrestling was uh, really great here. And these guys are just, they have great chemistry. I like watching these guys together. And, and I love the post-match with them kind of arguing up the ramp on who really won. There was like a backstage Dude, segment. They, they, they argued in the backstage. They argued on the way up. They argued the next night. They argued in the Tokyo Dome. Like, they literally were like, I beat you. No, I beat you. But your but your shoulders were down for three, yeah. But your shoulders were down for three. Nah, dog, I beat you. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of getting some like team hell no vibes with these guys, with the way like <laughs> Daniel Bryan and Kane used to argue. And I, I feel like in an alternate universe, like a, a variant Zack Saber Jr. and a variant Sonata would be tag team champions. That's funny. Now the main event we had uh, Lord Emperor Taichi come out to wrestle Tetsuya Naito. Very long storied rivalry. In fact, when we were uh, first starting this podcast, Tai Chi had uh, made his initial jump to heavyweight and kind of kicked off that heavyweight uh, campaign starting with the uh, early feud with Naito. And it's kind of progressed year after year. We kind of get these uh, various outings. And going into this match, Tai Chi had only ever beaten Tetsuya Naito one time in singles action. And he had never beaten him in a clean, decisive manner. It always been with cheating and, you know, shenanigans and that sort of thing. So had kind of a huge task in front of him. Naito, obviously one of the biggest stars in the company, you know, the 
former, you know, double gold champion from just the year prior. So this is kind of a big, tall task for Taichi going into this match. Yeah, I think both guys really performed well here. I think, you know, since Naito's kind of been in this program, I think he's been performing really well. You know, I haven't really seen the, the knees causing a lot of issues. I mean, he's been hitting all his big moves, you know, the Gloria, the Valentina. Um, he's been hitting Ronald and Super Ronalds. He's been wrestling really good. And uh, Taichi, man, he's just been on fire. I think he's really continuing to step his game up. And I, I thought he was one of the MVPs throughout this whole feud and, and, and this stretch of shows. I think he's showed great fire. The, the Kawada kicks was great. The Axe Bomber. Of course, I always pop for the, the dangerous uh, back suplex. And I loved here, no shenanigans, no Iron Claw, no Miho Abe interference, no Suzuki Goon interference, no ref bumps, straight up. Tai Chi beat this man strong style, dropped him on his dome with the Black Mephisto and got a clean win here. Yeah, that's a really, really big win. Um, now, I'm not saying specifically that this means Tai Chi is going to be like a world heavyweight champion or anything like that. But it puts him in rarefied air. This almost reminded me, um, Kevin Kelly kept talking about how these matches had sort of a G1-esque quality to them. And that's what this reminded me of. It's like, you know, those certain nights where certain guys can put it all together during a G1 and you know typically if this was like say um I don't know Sakura Genesis or something and it's for the title you're probably not going to put your money on Tai Chi but on night 11 of the G1 in the main event in Cork and Hall all bets are off and that's what this kind of felt like and when someone um you know picks up that big win like Tai Chi did here it raises their stock and then it kind of changes your opinion of them Going forward, it's like, wow, they uh, he beat Naito clean. I'm not saying he's going to do it again, but, I mean, if he can beat Naito clean, who can't he beat clean right. in this company? That, that sets him up really well for the G1 coming up in September because, he's yeah, he's beating Naito clean here on Summer Struggle Show. I can only imagine who he's going to beat in the G1. I can see him doing pretty well this year. There's no doubt he's going to be in it, but, I mean, with – how competitive the talent pool is going to be this year and everything, you know, you just never know. But like, if there was any doubt, this puts all that to rest because I mean, he punched his ticket to at least get to the G1 for sure. Um, I will tell you this, Jeremy watching this match, and this might just be me. Maybe this is part of the malaise of like cramming a lot of shows back to back. I was kind of bored with this match until the end. Really? And then I went back. Yeah, honestly, um, but then I went back and I looked at the general consensus scores and almost everyone universally loved this match. So I was, like, maybe it was just me. Here's the problem. I'm not going to go back and rewatch it. And it's because a, it was a 27 minute match and B we watched five shows in like five days. It like, if you even took a day off, I mean, this is worse than a G1. Most G1s don't have five five shows back to back to back to back. You know what I mean? Right. And, and, and like a five hour, four hour, like Tokyo Dome show. So it's like at this point, like whatever opinion I had is kind of just seared in there. I thought the fin- I thought the ending se- uh, segment was just fantastic, but um, I don't know. I thought this was a little long in the tooth for my taste personally, but I think one of the reasons aside from the hot clothes that people love this, obviously it's just 
A lot of people are getting behind Tai Chi, have been for some time now. And then the surprise, this really felt like a moment to see him beat, you know, the Dark Ace in Naito. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just felt like Tai Chi was extra fired up here. I thought all his strikes looked great. thought he was very aggressive. I loved the counters that they were doing. Again, I said Naito looked great as well. He was, you know, popping some great moves at, at Super Rana at one point in the match. And he's been hitting um, all his spots. Uh, tai Chi hit a, a killer Alabama slam at one point in the match. Oh, yeah, that was that was rough. <laughs> yeah, Kevin Kelly really sold that, calling, like, you know, one of the most dangerous moves in wrestling. It it. I- if you talk to any wrestler, they'll tell you like it's the worst, like it's the worst fucking bump because there's almost no way to like. It's hard to protect yourself. It's hard to protect that and the code red are like two of the worst moves to take. Mm. Because you're flipping and then bumping and like how are you gonna keep your chin tucked? You know, it, it's a it's a recipe for whiplash and it means you're probably gonna hit your head. It's hard not to. Yeah, I, I'm glad I'm not. Yeah, signing up to take any of that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that was the first night here. Uh, night two, uh, we start off with a uh, bull club team: Fantasma, Ojado, Ishimori defeating Goto, Rocky Romero, Rizuki Taguchi. Second match of the night: Ishii and Yano, def- along with Tanahashi, they defeated Evil Kenta Yujiro. Um, third match of the night: Great Okan and Jeff Cobb, they defeated Okada and Yoshihashi. So we know it's not just a Goto thing. You know, this man Okada can't pick up any tag wins. <laughs> yeah, you know, Okada's just, just, just not a good tag team wrestler. He's not a good tag team wrestler, man. <laughs> that This man teams with Tanahashi. He teams with Ishii, Goto. Bro, did... I, I told people a long time ago that he's New Japan's uh, Hulk Hogan. <laughs> you know, he's never going to be a great tag team wrestler. Like, it's just not going to happen. You know, he's never going to hold undercard titles. Like, he's a... He's a world champion and nothing else. Right. <laughs> um, fourth match of the night. Bushi and Shingo Takagi defeated Master Wato and Tomoaki Hanma. That brings us to the semi-main event with Sonata at, uh, against Taichi in the semifinals. And then the main event, Tetsuya Naito against Zack Sabre Jr. Yeah, so uh, Sonata gets the win over Taichi here. 23 minutes, 20 seconds. I thought this was uh, another uh, really good match here. Uh, the match opened up. We had the the Peck Flex uh, contest once again, and uh, Red Shoes kind of gave the official winner here, gave it the win to Sonata, which kind of uh, ticked Tai Chi off, and he um, gave uh, Sonata the the, the Roman uh, the Greco Roman chokehold, and kind of that infuriated Tai Chi. And uh, if this was in America, people would have been chanting "Stop the steal." Just saying, <laughs> stop the count. Uh, but yeah, but pretty good matchup from there. Um, I thought uh, Sonata and Taichi had some good chemistry. I don't really think we've seen these guys wrestle a ton one-on-one, uh, but I thought they looked good here. Once again, I, th- I thought Taichi, all his strikes were really good, a lot of fire, um, and a lot of great stuff here. Um, Sonata did a, a pretty cool uh, La Mystica into a skull end uh, to, to set that up. Uh, that was pretty cool. The interesting thing with this match, and it was something that Kevin Kelly harped on during the English commentary. He mentioned how Sonata is the type of wrestler who has a lot of different um, tools at his disposal, but very often his type of wrestling is one where he can roll you up in many different ways and pin your shoulders to the mat for the one, two, three. And conversely, Taichi had just gone through a war, uh, you know, a taxing war the night before. And he was like, you know, Sonata, 
going into this match. The match he had with Zack Sabre was more of a, you know, it's definitely an exhausting cardiovascular contest, but it wasn't a bruising war where he got damaged. And he was like, but Tai Chi came into this match off of a win. He got the momentum, but he also took the the, the damages. So it was like, is he going to have, you know, he's a striker. Is he going to have as much on those kicks, as much on those forearms, and as much on, on those slams and suplexes as he normally would versus Sonata still being spry and in great condition? He was like, I have a feeling Sonata might be able to just roll him up. And that's exactly what ended up happening at the end here is Sonata being able to just catch a more taxed and wearied uh, Tai Chi. Right, and especially, you know, coming off of that victory over Naito, I thought this was kind of prime for Tai Chi to win. Look at this closing stretch here. Uh, tai Chi hit a, a roaring elbow. He hits uh, Axe Bomber. He hits the, the, the dangerous uh, thrust kick. He hits a last ride. And so he's hitting all the big hits here, and then he's getting ready to go for Black Mephisto. So I'm like, oh, here it is. He's going to put Sonata away. Then he hit all these pin counters, and then, like you mentioned, yeah, Sonata just caught him slipping one, two, three, and got the win. Yeah, I went from the uh, Sonata was doing the I don't know what's that back roll that he does. What's that called? What the uh, like the European clutch? Yeah, roll. he was doing the European clutch, and then Tai Chi tried to uh, turn that into a Gato clutch, and then Sonata was able to turn that back into another European clutch and pick up the one, two, three. One other last thing I liked about this match was. Uh, both of them coming through the all Japan system and kind of, um, you know, revering those nineties, all Japan guys. There was a lot of like callback spots to, you know, to that whole thing. There was a lot of influence. There was a lot of Mizawa, a lot of Kobashi, a lot of Kawada and Tawe in this match. Yeah. Uh, one thing I got to mention before we move on, I, I, this is something I've been tr- Mean to mention in a lot of Sonata matches that I don't think I do. I always forget to mention it. Is I he's really what? <laughs> no, <laughs> I say he's boring. No, no, I'm just playing. Go ahead. That. What? I really hate his planches. His, his planches. Yeah, because his planches, he doesn't hit the guy. He lands on his feet, basically. Yes, it's like the most like laziest, like safe laziest looking planche ever. ever. I'm like, dude, I, I get you. You're not trying to kill yourself, but come on, like make contact. Hit him with like a cross body. Do you know what his planches remind me of? They remind me of the uh, the Charlotte um, the moon salts moon salt to the outside. Yeah, because they don't really make contact either. And here's the thing: like in a certain sense, I get it. They're both doing something highly athletic and entertaining, and they're trying to protect themselves. But it's also like so uniquely different than the way everybody else who might potentially do those moves does them. They come off looking kind of phony-ish you know what i mean because right. they're not making they're not they're not hitting them yeah and the plant like that's on the dude to catch you like go ahead like do do the crossbody style let them you know catch you and make some contact yeah i've noticed that too i've never brought it up but that's a good point um <laughs> yeah i keep me to mention it and i was looking back at my notes there i was like yes i need i need to mention how much i hate this stupid plancha that sonata does Six match of the night, we had uh, Tetsuya Naito taking on Zack Sabre Jr. Again, these two long storied history between the two of them. Um, the most recent uh, match was probably the G1 match they had last year. And Kevin Kelly on commentary even said that this was his favorite match of the entire G1, which perplexed me. I thought the match was good, but I was a, a little surprised at that. But um, Naito and Zack Sabre, in my opinion, almost always knock it out of the park against one another. I thought they had another terrific outing here. And the really surprising thing 
is how even though Naito went through that war the night prior, came in with a game plan. Some, you know, I think Sonata right. might have slipped him a little a little secret about Zack Saber's leg. <laughs> Well, I feel like Naito is already in Zack Sabre's head from the get-go. We've seen a lot of mind games between Naito and Zack Sabre in this tag feud, and especially with Naito being the one to pin Sabre in the tag title match to win the title. To win the title, yeah. Yeah, he, he's in Zack's head, and we, we kind of saw it here in the match where uh, Naito kind of gets the early advantage. He's messing with Sabre, kind of powdering at points, and kind of really getting inside of Sabre's head. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting because if you, um, you know, we know that this is the kind of company that likes to tell long-term stories. And if you go back to like 2018, New Japan Cup era, when this feud sort of just was first blossoming, it was always Zack Sabre in, Ty- or in um, Naito's head. Even going into the G1 that year, remember, he was kind of the spoiler that upset Naito. Yeah. It took a while for Naito to kind of exercise his Zack Sabre demon. Um so, yeah, and it's kind of flipped at this point where Naito sort of has Zack's number. He's kind of figured him out. And not only has he figured him out, not only does he have the mind game edge, but he really, really focused heavily, extensively on the legs of, of uh, Zack Sabre to where Zack didn't have a base to get going with, you know, the type of offense he usually likes to use, the type of grappling-based offense that he you know, likes to employ, like it just never really happened. And he just got disrupted his timing, his game plan. It was all thrown off the whole night. And it was like, it was still a competitive match, but like this was Naito's match from start to finish. Like Naito dominated him. Yeah. Something I wrote down, I was like, Naito looks, you know, pretty cocky for somebody who lost the previous night. And that's because he was already in Sabre's head and working over the leg and, he was even modifying some of his moves to focus on the leg, like the combination de cabron, instead of doing the drop kick to the face when he hopped in, he did the drop kick to the knee. So really had that bullseye on the knee, working over the knee throughout the match, um, even doing a lot of like submissions. I think he did like a, a deathlock type maneuver at one point in the match, um, getting Sabre to a, a near tap out. And then once again, pulling off some of the bigger moves, you know, the Super Rana, the Valentina, the Esperanza, that Diamond Dust. Uh, like maneuver uh, and really just kind of putting on the greatest hits here. Yeah. Beating that ass. <laughs> yeah. Um, toward, towards the end, had a lot of great reversals here. Uh, Sabre versus the Valencia, which is that uh snow plow brain buster maneuver into a dragon suplex. Not to pop right back up. He had a dragon suplex of his own. He had a strike exchange that goes for the PK, but Naito ends up hitting the Valencia hits the Destino and gets the win again over Zack Sabre jr. Yeah, so, I mean, um, not only does that not bode well for Zach going into the Tokyo Dome, because, like you mentioned, he was the one who suffered the pinfall loss um, just a couple weeks prior in Osaka uh, to lose the titles. But you look at the this little short round robin, and, I mean, LIJ comes out on top. At, collectively, as a team, they're 2-1-1 one, and one yeah. versus, you know, versus the other team, and the one guy who's winless in the whole entire round robin is Zack Sabre. He's sitting there at zero one and one, you know, so that's not looking so hot for him. Yeah. That, that, that would set up the whole story leading into the tag team title match, having Zack being the focus as the, the quote unquote weak link and coming in with a damaged knee and uh, being pinned in the last title match. Well, um, let's move on 
to Friday, which uh, that's going to take us to the United States with New Japan Strong and the Tag Team Turbulence semifinals. This was episode 50 of New Japan Strong here in the U.S. Yeah, so the show opened up with a semifinal match in the Tag Team Turbulence Tournament. We had Violence Unlimited, Brody King, and Chris Dickinson taking on the West Coast Wrecking Crew of Jarrell Nelson and Royce Isaac, defeating them at 10 minutes and 13 seconds. Uh, this match was good. One thing I, I will say, and this isn't just for this tournament, but kind of across the board, while I really like Strong, and I really enjoy it. And oftentimes they over deliver uh, on what is kind of expected. For some reason, in a lot of these tournaments, the, the semifinals and the quarterfinals, they kind of tend to under deliver to what I'm hoping and expecting for. And um, on this night, I was hoping at least that one or two of these tag matches would kind of like, you know, I'm not saying be blow away, but be very, very good. I mean, you look at the teams here, and I mean, I saw Brody King and Chris Dickinson against West Coast Wrecking Crew. I was like, man, it's going to rock. Yeah. And at 10, at 10 minutes, it was a good match, but it was a standard, it was the standard kind of opening tag match you might expect from any random episode of Strong. It didn't feel any particular, it didn't particularly feel special to me. Yeah. Or that, that they, I don't know, I guess part of it is they're still working in that empty studio you know part of it too i think it was this the layout of the match this week kind of talked about this a little bit off air um over the weekend i just thought the layout was kind of weird when you you had violence unlimited they're clearly baby faces in new japan strong west coast working crew on the heels and i feel like they were just getting the heat on jarell nelson just beating the crap out of him for majority of the match royce got in a little bit but it was pretty much like violence unlimited kind of like running through these guys but it wasn't like a baby face run through like they were kind of like Heedless in a way, and the dynamic was just kind of off in this match. Well, this is just my guessing, you know, who knows? But one part I'm kind of thinking is like, um, Brody King, Chris Dickinson, they're both pretty established stars. West Coast Wrecking Crew, they're kind of like the new kids in town, just sort of making their name. And I mean, I don't know if Brody King or Chris Dickinson wanted to. I'm not saying they wouldn't do business, that's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying I don't know if they felt at that time that it was the right thing for their characters to kind of like be the ones getting heat on and, and doing the sell, the big comeback and everything like that. Um, I feel like the idea was supposed to be to make violence unlimited look like badasses heading into the finals. And that kind of necessitated the, the heels to play baby, but uh, it did feel awkward. Like, you know what I mean? Because we already saw West Coast Wrecking Crew wrestle in the past past few times. They've been like these great cutoff tag teams, guys that isolate people in the corner, that keep the heat on a guy, and they weren't able to kind of do any of that here. Um, so, yeah, I agree with you. I thought the, the layout was a little weird. I don't know, for whatever reason. Yeah. But yeah, Vance Limit, they get the win. They advance to the finals, second matchup. And, and, and it just kind of ended abruptly. Like, there was a yeah. big move, and then Brody King hit the lariat, and then that was one, two, three. And it was, it was almost like... Uh, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong here. Maybe Brody Kings beat other people with a big lariat, but it felt like he was beating like a young boy with like his secondary finish. That's exactly how it felt like, yeah. And I was like, oh, he, they won. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, cool. <laughs> uh, 
uh, second matchup, the other semifinal matchup with the Good Brothers, Doc Gals, and Machine Gun Carl Anderson defeating Ren Narita, Yuji Nagata, 10 minutes and 40 seconds. Uh, I mean, nothing, once again, nothing really special about this match. It, it was it was a I, Good I Brothers like match. It was a Good Brothers tag match. Oh, while we're on the subject, so we've been watching a lot of wrestling lately, trying to keep up with what's going on in the world of wrestling, and you know, um, there's a lot going on in AEW, New Japan, Impact. There's like a little bit of a cohesion between them, and the one thing that you know is going to be the case without fail if you're watching Strong or Dynamite or Impact, you're going to see the fucking Good Brothers, and. <laughs> My girlfriend wanted me to come on the air and tell all of you that she is officially boycotting the Good Brothers. She is done with the Good Brothers. She doesn't want to see them for at least a good month. They didn't do anything wrong or anything like that. She just is tired of them. She's like, these guys are on TV again? Why are they on my TV? Well, I guess well, I'll say she can, what she's going to watch. I forgot she's a big WWE fan. So, yeah. So, no, no Good Brothers there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, who knows? She's like, she's like, they're gonna show up on Raw. I know it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, this match, you know, this was one where, you know, the Good Brothers have never been known as, you know, an all-time standout work-rate tag team. You know, they go out there, they do what they're supposed to do, they get the job done. That's fine. You know, they've had a lot, they had a lot of success in New Japan in the past. Uh, they're big names. Obviously, they're probably favorite to win this tournament or at least go to the finals we knew that going into this but at the same time often there have been quite a few matches since they've started this independent slash you know indie run or whatever you want to call it where they've kind of really put their working shoes on and like gone out there and busted their asses and we've seen that in impact and AEW. so when they kind of got announced for this tag tournament, I was like, oh, man, you know, we might get, get like, a little bit of a hidden gem out of these guys. And then when I saw it was that they're going up against, like, Nagata and Narita, I was like, you know, I'm going to be optimistic. This might really be good. But they went out there, and they took two guys that I love, and Nagata and Narita, and made me not really care about their match. Uh, they had a fine match, but it wasn't – I would say it was – fine it wasn't even good it was just is whatever it was like maybe t- i don't know three stars two and three quarters they just went out there and they had a fucking good brothers monday night raw match you know 10 minutes 40 seconds they got the win match killer blah 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 you know i think there was some cheating i don't know i think they grabbed someone's leg but uh it was fine but like this is kind of not what i was expecting when they were coming to new japan actually I could have easily expected this. This is not what I was hoping for. Yeah, and you know, maybe it's them, you know, give them a little bit benefit of the doubt, empty arena environment, not wanting to kill themselves. So maybe once they're actually in front of a crowd, maybe at resurgence, we'll see a little bit more. But yeah, wasn't blown away by this matchup here. Oh, let me say one other thing before we move on to the main event. Alex Kozlov has gotten a lot better on commentary. He has. It's taken 50 episodes. Okay. It's taken 50 episodes, but I'm kind of on the Alex Kozlov train now. Like there was a period where I like would have done anything to get him off the show. But after a good period of time, like I really feel like he's coming into his own and has really improved as a commentator. Now, I don't know what he'll be like live. I don't know what he'll be like, you know, with fans and all that in the future. 
But for right now, I think he's a lot. I mean, I don't know. I, I haven't gone back and watched his old shows, but I'm enjoying what he's doing now. Back then, I just fucking hated it. So, yeah. And honestly, I think back in the old shows, still trying to find his footing, still trying to learn his whole commentary thing. Also, Kevin Kelly's a great person uh, to learn with on the job. And we've seen Kevin Kelly really help, you know, make announcers better. Um, and so. There's a lot of times where he would make jokes in the past where, like, it, it felt like he was trying to lean into, like, adjusting the body of Ventura, Bobby the Brain Heenan, uh, Don Callis sort of-esque role, you know, the heel commentator. And a lot of the stuff, it almost felt like, uh, how do I describe it? Like, when you see a comedian and they're just working stuff out and they haven't fine-tuned their show yet, you know what I mean? They're out there and they're, like, trying to see what has legs and it, and it hasn't really fully developed yet. That's kind of what he seemed like. Like there were some times where like he'd make jokes and I could, I'd be like, you know, there was something there, but the delivery was off. Or like, I also imagine like with him having like uh, speaking two languages, the language barrier, and then coming on to like a major platform like this. And, you know, I, I mean, that's a hard job. Like, I don't think even me as a regular English speaker, I could you know, I can't do color like, you know, that would I'd suck at it, you know, so it, I can only imagine how hard it'd be for someone where English is your second language. But suddenly, all of a sudden, like it's like he's worked out his gig or his show or whatever, because like those those punchlines and those jokes, they're, they're they're hitting now. And it's like he's kind of like plus I think he's a lot more familiar with the product i know he wrestled for new japan for a while but he was away for quite a while now like he seems to know the storylines he seems to know the, the characters the players involved and yeah he's just he's gotten a lot better man and obviously i'm sure kevin kelly has a lot to do with that yeah and i think a lot of it too like kind of similar to what you're mentioning i don't feel like he was like committing to do the gaming like he would like be like a heel commentator from one match and then kind of flip-flop just kind of being regular in another match and now i feel like he's leaning more into that and kind of sticking with that kind of I'm um, backing the heels kind of role. Yeah. And I'm fine with that. It's, you know, whatever they want to do. But, um, so, uh, before we go to the main event, uh, it's very clear that the finals of the tournament, it's going to be the good brothers against violence Unlimited. Once again, Jeremy, you and I have accurately predicted this tournament. Um, I wish Chris Samsa would, uh, you know, get his, uh, website up so we could win some prizes on our uh, <laughs> <laughs> on our on our uh, prediction contest or whatever but um let's go to the main event here we've got the njpw strong openweight title as the defending champion tom waller with jared kratos takes on the legend satoshi kojima yes my man the leader of the bread club the summer of cozy arrived at new japan strong and which which is fitting because Tom Waller actually came out and offered bread as a peace offering to Satoshi Kojima. That to start was freaking hilarious. This man pulled bread out of his trunks to. <laughs> <laughs> and Alex Kozlov was like, "There's not a greater gift you could give to another competitor as a show of appreciation." I don't understand why Kojima doesn't want it. <laughs> And uh, Lawler also wore uh, one elbow pad so he could, you know, tease Kojima, how Kojima throws up the elbow pad for Hilaria. He did that, like, right in front of Kojima's face, uh, which Kojima was not happy about. Yeah, Kojima's, like, disrespect will not be tolerated. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I thought this match was really, really good. I know we were kind of 
questioning how the chemistry would be, how Styles would work since Waller's mainly more grapple-based and Kojima's more strike-based, but I thought the chemistry worked out really well here. Uh, you had Lawler trying to you know break down Kojima, grapple him, um, locking in Kimura as he was working on the the, the arm and the, he uh, the lariat on the post, and so Kojima working over or Lawler working over the arm, put Kimura on the post onto Kojima. Yeah, Kojima firing back. Lawler once again just focusing on different body parts, trying to slow uh, Kojima down. Kojima was able to hit his big DT on the apron at one point in the match. His uh, top rope elbow drop. Uh, he even busted out some uh, Mongolian chops from his partner Tenzon to slow down uh, Lawler. He locked in the Anaconda Vice, too, at one point for a uh, near submission, the Koji Cutter. Uh, but uh, Lawler versus the Larry into a rare naked choke. But Kojima used a, a judo throw to escape. And then um, Kojima's getting ready to set up the, the Larry. He hits a brain buster. He's getting ready to set the Larry. But JR Kratos pulls his leg. And Lawler hits the PK, rear naked choke, ref stoppage. Filthy Tom retains and is still the strong openweight champion. Um, yeah, great job uh, breaking that down there, Jeremy. Um, I- I'll tell you, I was not as high on this match as I think you may have possibly been. But I still thought it was a solid outing. I liked this quite a bit more than the Carl Fredericks um, defense. And probably a notch just a little bit below the inaugural title match with Brody King and maybe a little bit less than the um, Chris Dickinson title defense. In my opinion, I think the New Japan Strong title is still kind of lacking that one truly great title match. Maybe we'll be seeing something with that here at Resurgence or down the line with crowds. But I thought the match was very good. I thought it was a good outing for both guys. And um he told a great story, so you know, uh, it was a it was a fine fitting, um, you know, title defense for the fiftieth show. I was a little let down. I think I had higher expectations all around for all these matches, in my opinion. But you know, one hour tight TV show. I mean, how how much more can I can you know complain really about it when it's they're in, they're out, they tell their stories. It's easy to follow, easy to digest, and. You know, and then we're moving on to resurgence. Right. So yeah, I, I had the match at three point seven five. Man, you really you love Kojima. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I thought this match was really good, but uh, yeah, good main event here, and that leads into this week's coming up uh, strong. Like we mentioned the finals of the tag team turbulence with the Good Brothers against Violence Unlimited. We're also going to have a six-man tag with Carl Fredericks, Fred Rosser, and Adrian Quest against the West Coast Wrecking Crew and Mysterioso in the show. Bro, West Coast Wrecking Crew, Mysterioso, that's pro- that's got to be like one of my favorite six-mans right there. <laughs> let's, let's get these boys never never six-man title shots, you know? Yeah. And uh, the show's going to open up with Kevin Knight taking on Bateman. Let's go, Kevin Knight. Fuck him up. I, I, thought, I thought Bateman was your boy. Bateman is my boy, but, you know, Kevin Knight is us. <laughs> so uh, let's move on to Summer Struggle in Nagoya. So the show opened up. We had Eagles and Punky 3K defeating Doki, Despi, and Katamaru. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry. I haven't looked at – I'm looking at our run sheet. There's funny questions here. And I, I haven't looked – I didn't look at the run sheet before we started the show, so I apologize. <laughs> 
second matchup, we had uh, Rocky, Ishii, Yoshihashi, and Deguchi defeating ELP, Jado, Taiji, and Yujiro. Third matchup, we had Okada and Yano defeating the United Empire, Great Okan, Jeff Cobb. Fourth matchup, we had Bushi and Chingo defeating Master Wato and Tomioka Hanma. Then we get to our semi-main and main event. So in the semi-main event, we had Evil with Dick Togo defeating Tomohiro Ishii, 28 minutes, 7 seconds. Boy, oh boy. Um, so this is actually, um, because of how crazy the, the week was, I didn't get a chance to actually watch this show until today. So I had to kind of backtrack. Uh, I watched this after I saw the Tokyo Dome show. And um, this might be one of the first times I could ever really say that I thoroughly unenjoyed a Tomohiro Ishii singles match. I mean, Mm. I'm sure he's been in some matches where I'm like, wasn't the greatest. But most of the time, I think of some of his G1 singles matches, you know, with guys that I don't, that I like, but I don't typically, you know, think of as like the greatest singles performers. Um, guys like Tamatonga, guys like Bad Luck Fale, Yujiro, certain versions of Tai Chi, just you know, throughout the years. And almost inevitably, he usually brings those guys up to like their highest levels in those tournaments, you know? Yeah. And we've and we've seen him wrestle evil numerous times to varying different um results, but it's almost always been passable to sometimes even bordering great. This was bad, (laughs) especially at 28 minutes. Like now I think some of the reviews are, uh, I don't think the reviews that you see online on grapple and cage match are indicative of what really happened in this match. But I think they're also an indication of how frustrated the fan base and the audience are getting with this type of shit. Yeah. Um, and I mean, this was your, your evil match. We talked about it last week. You know, we, we were expecting the shenanigans and the cheating and the ref bumps. And I feel like for me, I think I'm like conditioned to it now. I'm expecting it to happen. So maybe I'm kind of grading these matches on a curve now. I, I know it's going to happen. So I'm trying to maybe like work around that but I thought Ishii like worked really hard in this match and everything that he was doing uh was great as, as usual but also you had to worry about with Dick Togo popping up and then uh towards the end we had Yujiro running in as well well I mean dude it was like the majority of the early parts of the match were on the outside it was all running into rails all running into posts all running into chairs Chair spots, ref bumps, timekeeper table spots, um, more ref bumps, outside interference, outside interference, distractions, everything. Like, literally, this was the most, like, shenanigans-filled non-Yano G1 match that I could, like, think of in recent memory. Yeah. And here's the other thing, too. They wrestled a lot on the outside. They used a lot of foreign objects and things like that. And so there's a part of me that was watching it that was thinking, you know, technically nothing that they're doing is bad. Technically, I know they're trying to get heat, but if they wouldn't do it at such a workman rate type of pace, you know, it was just like, it felt like a triple H match, you know, Mm. the bad kind (laughs) where it was like him and Seth Rollins at WrestleMania. They're just 
going from spot to spot and they're plotting and they're walking and they're brawling. And I'm like, dude, if you fucking hate this guy, why can't it be like the Jericho Naito matches? Remember those matches were like mostly on the outside and we like praised the shit out of those matches. Why can't it be like that? Like there was like no heat. It was just like, I don't know. I think evil thinks the heat is like, I'm boring these people to tears. They hate <laughs> me. I'm, I'm working them. Yeah. It's like, dude, you're working yourself. Cause no one wants to see you. Like I fucking hate before, before when he was just LIJ evil, I was just like, yeah, I don't really like his matches, but now I don't ever want to watch him wrestle. I hate him. Oh, <sighs> Well, we did have some questions here. Uh, first from our buddy Rich Latta from One Nation Radio. He says, doesn't evil suck? <laughs> That's the question that popped me. <laughs> I just read that. I'm like, yeah. You know, here's the thing. Unfortunately, I don't even think that he does suck. I think that this is a conscious effort to be bad. Right. I mean, you he, know? He, he was he was fine before. Now, I mean, also he wasn't standout. He wasn't having, you know, five-star matches, but. You put him in there with the right guy. You put him in there for Goto and Ishii or maybe a Tai Chi. He can get close to that, that four-star range. And I mean, dude, there's a lot of guys in this company that get heat. You know, Jay White, Suzuki, ELP, Kenta. I don't hate their matches. I don't hate watching them wrestle all the time. Um, you know, but this fucking evil this fucking Watanabe, bro. <laughs> yeah, he sucks. Um, Mitch MM22 asked, so everyone hates the excessive ref bumps and interference in Bullet Club matches, and rightfully so. But am I alone in thinking the babyface crawling into the ring and breaking the count at 19 spot is just as, if not more, overdone and predictable? I don't even know where to try to I'll start. Um, appreciate the question, but got a strong disagree. Strong, strong disagree. Now, do is there a point where maybe they overdo the countout spot? Yes. And um, could it be that you know less is more? If they did it a little bit less, maybe potentially they get more out of it when they do it. Probably. I also think that there's a great way where you can do count out victories. They used to do them in the eighties and they weren't all bad. There were times where you won decisively by count out and titles changed off those types of matches. You know, we just saw what essentially on AEW this past week was essentially a quote unquote, I know it was a knockout, but it was basically a count out victory. If you think about it, the guy yeah. got knocked to the outside. He got count out by 10. You can win by count out sometimes and it's be like, not a fluke thing. So I, I kind of agree with you, but to say that it's less done or more overdone or more frustrating than what's been going on in bullet club matches, namely Dick Togo evil matches this year. Hell fucking no, <laughs> no. One of these things is a pet peeve and a minor annoyance that someone who might be hypercritical or have a keen observing eye might find, you know, excessive. The other thing is actually doing detrimental long-term damage to the quality of the product and turning people away from the product who have been years long, long time fans. If I wasn't doing this show, I would never watch an evil match again. 
That's how fucking bad it is. So no, they're not even in the same league. They're not even the same sport. They're not in the same world. Yeah, I feel like the 19-count spot is similar to a near fall. That would be, that'd be like saying like they do too many like, you know, false. Too many near falls. Yes, too many false finishes, too many near falls. But that, that's like part of the drama of the match. Like if somebody gets did, hit. Did you see, you see these fuckers, Macho Man and, and Rick Steamboat? Went out there and did 20-something near falls and killing the business. <laughs> uh, I feel like, you know, just like a good near fall done rightly, it, it adds drama to the match. And if you, you get hit with a big move on the outside and you're selling it really well and you're barely getting into the ring by 19, I think it's very believable that uh, I know a count-out could happen. Um, Let me ask you a question, Jeremy. Which guy are you? Are you a John Cena Get into the ring at the last minute, meaning you sell, 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 sell. Nine comes, and then you pop up and slide into the ring at ten. Are you that guy? Or are you like a Tanahashi guy where it's like 18, and he's getting up 19, and then he falls out, and then 20's coming, and then he jumps, and then he gets in. You know, like he just barely rolls in. Which one are you? I'm the Tanahashi. I I love that, bro, where like selling (laughs) – Cause that makes it so much more believable. Because oh, it's like so good. he fell down at night. He fell down at eighteen. Like how the heck is he gonna jump back up in time to get in the ring? Bro, I love it when they're getting in and like you know they're getting in. You're like okay, seven, sixteen, seventeen. They're getting in, and then the fucking like apron goes out from underneath them and they fall back down. You're like oh god. <laughs> <laughs> I remember um, there's a match from Ring of Honor. Um, what's the big December show that they have? Best in the world? Yeah, it's their uh, end of the year pay per view. Yeah. Um, twenty fifteen, twenty sixteen was the last big show that. Um, no, I'm AJ sorry. Final, final, final battles. Their last final show. battle. That's yeah. right. There's a final battle match. It's um, AJ Styles challenging for the ROH World Title. And I think it's his last title shot ever in Ring of Honor. The Jay Lethal against, match? Against Jay Lethal. When Jay Lethal was on his, like, monster run. And there's an incredible count-out spot where, you know, remember the, the rumors that AJ was never going to wrestle again? And right. he was about to retire because his back was, like, so messed up? Yeah. And then um, they do a spot where he goes over the top rope through the announce, like, timer's table. That was at ringside. He literally goes over the top rope through it. And like they and they have the 20 count too. And at 18, he tries to get in, he rolls out. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the best ones ever. And then he obviously he gets in. But like it, that made the match. Like there, I can tell you so many times where that's made the match. You know what has never, ever, ever, ever made a match? Anytime someone has ever pulled out a groat wire and choked anybody in professional wrestling for any reason, especially when their name is Dick Togo and it's in New Japan for wrestling. It's, it's the worst shit ever. Or uh, being hit by a pimp cane. That's bad too. <laughs> man, man, oh man. Um, Dom Hobie 101 asked me, is it me? Or was the Ishii evil Dick Togo timekeeper table spot funny? I, I did like that the spot. Obvious, the obvious spots are funny. Yeah, so, you know, Evil's been doing this thing where he, you know, he pushes over the uh, Abe at the announce table, and the table flips over him, but uh, Ishii gave Evil a little taste of his own medicine. He, he set up Evil at the announce table and pushed him over, um, giving Evil a little taste of his own medicine, and yeah, I, I did like that spot. So, the next question, um, 
Dom Homie 101 asks us, so what song by Kanye Omari West, a.k.a. Kanye West, reminds you guys of evil? I felt like oh. he, he asked this before, and I thought we'd answer for it. I don't remember what we said the last he's, time. He's, he asked us a different rapper, but, like, um, man, I don't know. I'm trying to think of, like, what's a, a good – a good answer. Um, maybe fade. Because <laughs> I want this man to go away. <laughs> you, want the, you want this man to fade away and class him, classify himself as obsolete. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe flashing lights. Because that man's a flash in the pan and he needs to fucking go away. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I mean, I don't know. I know like most of Kanye's West. Most of Kanye West songs that I know are like his really, really big hits. What, I'm kind of like just what about uh, at. what about Gold Digger? Because he's stealing money from this promotion. <laughs> <laughs> How about All Falls Down? Because if this man keeps getting pushed, it's gonna bring the company down to the ground. <laughs> Seriously, I don't know, man. But uh, that's, yeah, that's, that's it. Yeah, let's let's move on to the main event here. So we have the Ace. Hiroshi Tanahashi defeating Kenta 24 minutes and 51 seconds. Oh, okay. Um, oh, this so this match, Tanahashi versus Kenta. Awesome. Awesome, awesome match. I really, really enjoyed this. Um, most of the matches they've had in New Japan, I've liked quite a bit. I think the work, the one I least enjoyed was maybe the uh, briefcase challenge from late last year. Yeah. But other than that, their their G1 matches have been very good, um, and I've enjoyed what they've put together. And it's always interesting when they wrestle each other because there there's the initial generational rivalry in the sense that when Kenta was the major main star of his promotion, Pro Wrestling Noah, Tanahashi was kind of the, the fast-rising New Japan star, and they kind of like had – Similar, similar trajectories, and now all these years later, they they find themselves in the same company, and they're kind of on, you know, um, their their paths are finally crossing, and that's always kind of part of the story. But then there's always then there's the second part of it where it's like Kenta's a scumbag, and he turned his back on Katsuyori Shibata, and he joined Bull Club, and he betrayed the fans and everything that everyone thought he was, you know, um, he he threw all, all that away. And then you take into account the feud they had the year prior with the uh, red briefcase and the U.S. title challenge and kind of all the mythos there. And they kind of told all of that in one fine tale here in this match, which was like they had some good build to this match, but this match didn't seem like it was going to be like it was going to be any sort of seminal moment. But then like you had the involvement of Katsuyori Shibata, which was unexpected. And then you had the emergence of the red briefcase coming back. And then you had the callback spots to the previous matches. Plus the match just happened to be really good bell to bell regardless. And then you you throw those other cherries on top and you're talking about a classic. I thought this match was probably the best match they've had since their first initial G1 outing a couple years ago. I thought this was the best match. Maybe even better than that. I think this might be the best match Tanahashi and Kent have had in, in New Japan because this was like the most fully formed version of Kenta taking on modern Tanahashi. And yeah, I just thought this match was awesome. 
Yeah, for me, I think I still like the uh, G one match uh, a little bit better, but I really enjoyed this match as well. The one prior, was that last year's or the first one? Uh, the the first one. Okay, when they were both faces, basically. Yeah, yeah, the twenty nineteen G one. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. I think that's to me. I think that's probably the best match in in my eyes. But this match was really good as well. Um, like you mentioned, Shibata coming out on commentary at the beginning of the match, so you knew that was kind of foreshadowing things to come. And uh, you know, Kenta came out. You had the stare down between Kenta and Shibata. Remember the whole last time, last angle they did there with um, when Shibata got involved. And um, throughout the match, you had Tanahashi using a lot of uh, Shibata's moves, and we would also see that going into the main event at Wrestle Grand Slam. But um, Tanahashi, you used- also you also had Kenta using some of Shibata's moves in a mocking way as well. Right. So you have both of them doing the, the corner drop kicks, um, the head butts at one point, and the, the PK and the sleeper uh, really trying to uh, incorporate a lot of uh, Shibata here in this matchup, which would uh, play in towards the finish of the match. Like you mentioned, Kenta pulls out the, the old red briefcase that was still damaged when he smashed it across uh, Tanahashi's head. Um, he hits Tanahashi with it, but then Shibata slams in, hits a pump kick, and he throws Shiretsu's back in the ring. And uh, Tanahashi is able to finish off Kenta with the uh, Twist and Shout Sling Blade and eventually reverses a GTS and hit a Dragon Suplex, which allowed him to get up and hit the, the Aces High fall with a high fly flow and get the win here. In my opinion, there's not a greater finishing sequence of moves then Hiroshi Tanahashi hitting the standing high fly flow and then the standard high fly flow following it. And it's like a really long drawn out thing. And at this point it puts most people away. We'll talk about times where it doesn't, but you know, there's a lot of times where it gets countered at this point. So it's like, it takes a long time for it to even happen. So like, the payoff of when it finally lands both times, boom, he take you know, he gets the guy down and then boom, he lands again. You're like, Oh my God, Tanahashi's <laughs> the greatest wrestler alive today. Yeah. <laughs> like it just gives you that ecstatic feeling that other moves that are cooler, like for instance, like the one winged angel is awesome. You know, um, the rainmaker's awesome. The, you know, the, uh, what does Will Ospreay use? The, uh, the um, Stormbreaker. The Stormbreaker. You know, a lot of those moves are more dynamic and, and kind of, you know, interesting. But, like, there's something special, man, about Tanahashi hitting those two fucking moves back to back. And you're just like, oh, my God, he's the greatest. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, one thing I loved about this match was, like, it was built up as, like, a kind of keep busy upper mid-card we don't have a title, either one of us, so let's find something to do match. And in this main event spot, prior to the Tokyo Dome, obviously it was going to play a big role into the main event of the Tokyo Dome, as we alluded to last week, might be a possibility. But the way they built it up with the inclusion of Shibata, all the storytelling elements, and the, just kind of the epic feel, it really was a fitting de facto number one contender match you know from out of nowhere from a match that was kind of like not that well built just kind of like haphazardly thrown together to suddenly like kind of felt like a a special moment in a certain sense in a vacuum which was kind of unexpected yeah i was kind of ahead because remember i was saying that this should be like a number one contenders for the u.s title but 
with Abushi being Alice, this essentially ended up becoming the number one contenders for the IWG World Heavyweight title. Well, uh, as we'll find out later, both the semi and the main event play a big role into the future of the uh, world title. But um, that's going to do it for that night. So let's move on to Wrestle Grand Slam in Tokyo Dome, July 25th, this past Sunday. We had a couple uh, questions leading into our coverage of this. Yeah, so Viking Pain asks, how was New Japan able to get fans into Wrestle Grand Slam in the middle of a state of emergency while the Olympics couldn't? Is it because the Olympics is just mid-AF and now New Japan is Ishiban? Oh, one thing I wanted to point out. Last week we got a question. I don't remember who it was, but someone asked us our thoughts on the uh, cardboard beds. Did you do any research? I saw a little bit about it, and that, that person did ask about it again later on. Yeah, so basically they don't want they didn't want people in the uh, Olympic Village fucking. So they, they outfitted them all with beds made out of cardboard that were strong enough to support one individual's weight. But if two people got on it, it would literally collapse and fall to pieces, and then they'd have nowhere to sleep. And that was to try and curb the spread of COVID. I wonder if it works. <laughs> Bro. <laughs> Anyways, uh, listen, if, if anyone wants to question New Japan's power, you know, people thought those stories about them trying to keep Kenny Omega out of the country were fake. They just ran the Tokyo Dome while the Olympics is running empty, empty arena. So, I mean, you tell me what's fake. I don't know. Right, yeah, New Japan, they, they had a little bit over 5,000, while the Olympics had zero. Yeah, actually... Out through the Olympics, bro. Uh, you know, maybe some favors were done. Maybe there was, a, you know, something under the table. I don't know. I Actually, to be honest, I think what most of it was was that they'd already sold the tickets and were kind of grandfathered in before the, like, true state of emergency, like, protocols were put into place. Because remember, they couldn't sell any more tickets after a certain period of time. Right, yeah, they got cut off, like, two or three weeks before they were, like, done selling tickets. Right, so, I don't know. That's what, We don't live in Tokyo. That's what we know. So, Dom Homie yeah. 101 asks, well, thoughts I think, on the I think another thing, too, is just the fact that, like, all, you have all these other athletes coming in from out of right. the country, too. Whereas, as far as, like, New Japan, at least, you know, they're doing, I don't know what the Olympics they're, testing. They're all vaccinated. Right, they're all vaccinated. They're doing testing. and. Um, Bro, vaccination is so weird. Like, obviously, we're all pro-vax, whatever, but, like... You hear, I'm hearing weird stories like in the media about like these breakthrough cases with the Delta variant. Like, you know, I don't know. I'm hearing about like some people getting really sick even though they're vaccinated. But like, bro, I don't, I don't know. I'm, it's over for me out here. <laughs> Delta's a work. No, I'm not saying that. Delta, <laughs> Delta's probably real. I don't know. I, I'm sure there's going to be mutations. I mean, most uh, pathologists and like. Uh, virologists were kind of saying that much since this whole thing started, you know, so I don't know. Right. Uh, Dom Homie 101 says, thoughts on the atmosphere at the Wrestle Grand Slam show that took place at the Tokyo Dome. Did it seem off to you guys to see a dome show without the big stage setup? Yeah, man, the atmosphere for this show was very jarring. First of all, seeing the dome without, you know, it, it wasn't a Wrestle Kingdom setup because it was Wrestle Grand Slam. They were trying to go off more of the baseball feel. So you, you had the guys, you know, coming out from the dugout, just like um, Jingu uh, Stadium last year. You kind of had them come out through the dugout, more of a baseball kind of look. And it was just super jarring than the fact that, you know, normally, you know, last several years we're used to seeing 
the dome um, pretty filled up. And I know this past uh, Wrestle Kingdom, we had um, two nights that were limited capacity, but it still looked um, a little bit more full than what we saw here. But yeah, that opening shot where you see like the 5,000 people, there's no big stage, there's, there's more light than usual. It just everything about the whole setup and the atmosphere was just super weird. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a great cover story that they're like, you know, we didn't do a big stage because we're trying to keep it more baseball oriented because it's Wrestle Grand Slam. Maybe that's the case, or maybe, you know, um, it wasn't prudent or, you know, financially viable to do the big production and the big stage and everything like that. So I think that could be just a nice little cover story, possibly. I'll tell you this much, Jeremy. Um, I hated watching a Tokyo Dome show with like less than 6,000 capacity. Um, It was not for me. And it took me days to finish this show. Mm. I cannot tell you. And it wasn't because I was like up late watching it and then I got tired and then I finished it the next day. It was like, no, I turned the show off and it was a good show. In a vacuum, it was a great show. It's probably going to be one of our leading like show of the year candidates when it's all said and done. So I'm not even like complaining about the quality or anything like that. It's just the atmosphere was so jarring and kind of like, I don't know, it took me out of it to the point where I was like, oh, I don't know, I'll come back and watch these last two matches later. Like that's where I was watching mm-hmm. this show. Um, I thought it sucked. You know, I'm glad that they did a big show like this. And I'm glad we had great stories and forward progression and all that. But like, bro, this sucked. I hated it. I know other people loved it. I know for other people, um, just having great matches in the vacuum is enough. But I'll tell you this much. I liked night one of WrestleMania more than I liked this night of Wrestle Grand Slam. Mm. Match for match. I'll put Wrestle Grand Slam up all day, but this is not a match I would show anybody that I was like trying to get into New Japan. You right, know, I'm not right. going to show them the empty seats and you know the low production value and 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 all that. Like hell no, there, there's you couldn't pay me to do that. You know, <laughs> so like yeah, no, I'd rather watch Bianca Belair and Sasha Banks and you know the I don't know Alexa Bliss bleed from her head or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, with uh, 30,000 fans that could actually cheer. Right. So, I mean, that that was, you know, the crowd does make a big difference. Right, especially know? now that pretty much every wrestling everywhere else is starting to get crowds. We're watching Dynamite. We're, we're seeing, you know, clips from Raw and SmackDown. We're seeing Impact, Ring of Honor. All these companies are starting to get their fans back. Even, you know, Strong's about to have fans um, in a couple of weeks as well. And so... Everybody else is getting back to normal and having fans, so it's really hard to go from a, a hot, you know, Texas Dynamite crowd to a five thousand clap crowd in a building that holds like what forty thousand people max capacity. Yeah, I saw a post recently where someone was complaining about the disrespect of the live audiences in America and how they prefer the crap the the clap crowd the crap crowd the clap <laughs> crowd 
because they're more respectful. And I'm like, and they're like, you know, give me that any day over, you know, whatever. I don't remember what it was. Maybe it was like an AEW crowd or some, some crap. And I'm like, hell no, (laughs) (laughs) hell no. Like it's not better. Like that's cap. Like, I'm sorry. Um, it's just not better, you know, unfortunately. And I'm not even, I'm not like trying to take, you know, take a jab at the fans. It's not their fault. Uh, but that's just the state we're in, but it sucks. It yeah. just does. And it, it's not as fun to watch. Re- Dude, you made me watch this really awesome Cork and Hall match from 2013 Super Juniors. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> Dude, anytime I, I miss like, Real crowds in Japan. Yes. Anytime I watch, I recommend a match. I'm just like, man, I miss the crowd so much, especially the Corkin shows. Because we watch some of these old, like, Corkin shows, and it's, like, jam-packed, you know, standing room only, crowds <laughs> going wild. And then you flip over to, like, today Corkin Hall show, there's, like, 600 people. They're spread out. They can't cheer. Uh, yeah. Well, let's move on. One thing I will say Finally, before we start reviewing the individual matches, overall as a show, this actually reminded me in a certain way of a WrestleMania-esque level show. What I mean by that was they still kind of follow it, but not as much. But years ago, when you would watch a WrestleMania or even like a good Wrestle Kingdom, there would be an escalation from like obviously like the lower lower card matches to your tag team feuds to your like mid cards to the main event and maybe the matches on the lower card weren't as important and maybe they weren't given as much time or as much opportunity to shine but there's always like a certain story some sort of hook that they had to kind of draw you in and it was kind of unique to their story to the rest of the card and you see that a lot with like the 90s mid 90s to like early 2000s wrestlemanias well that's something that you really saw here the way they worked this each individual match even if the in my opinion this is i know we disagree a little bit here but um in my opinion i thought over the whole course of the night every single match improved upon the the match before it which was cool but beyond that each match was unique because they each told a different kind of story and that was kind of the the one um positive point but what i felt was unfortunate was that that would have been so awesome in front of a real crowd oh, to have that and they didn't have that and it really drew back a lot right i think even having a crowd from like the tokyo dome wrestling Kingdom this year where we had more like twelve thousand people you had a big stage there's a little bit more energy i felt with that with that like double sized crowd yeah and i'm not trying to be like Debbie Downer here. Uh, I we just got to tell the truth. That's how I feel. Yeah. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Mini Health understands that for women over forty, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Well, let's start off with the pre-show. We're going to start off with the pre-show Rambo, uh, the 22-man New Japan Rambo with handcuffs match. And um, the... 
participants in this match, we had Bushi, Diktogo, Doki, Great Okan, Hiroki Goto, Tenzan, Kenta, Wato, Suzuki, Kojima, Sho, Tiger Mask, Togi Makabe, Hanma, Ishii, Yano, Yo, Yoshihashi, Kanemaru, Yuji Nagata, Yujiro Takahashi. Almost every single person that was not on the main show that was available live was in this Rambo. So they got almost the whole available roster. But the surprise winner of this year's New Japan Rambo, the crown jewel, the honorary Tongman, Chase Owens. The Texas heavyweight champion, Chase Owens. The speaking out alleged perpetrator, <laughs> Chase Owens. Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> Tell me I'm lying. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, Chase has kind of been involved in this KLPW uh, thing. You know, he had the he had the the, uh, the bull rope match with Yano. And then, you know, at the beginning of the year, he was in the Rambo as well. That set up like the four way for the KLPW. So he's been trying to get this KLPW for a while. Didn't have, hasn't had good luck so far. And so, yeah, this was his moment here. Um, you know, towards the end, you had, I believe, you know, Kenta was handcuffed in the ring. And so was, I think, Yoshihashi. And uh, that kind of played into it as well. Well, a couple things, not to, you know, go too in depth because, again, it's a Rambo. But the big standout stories were that prior to, um, Yano coming in because he came in late as the champion. He had like a champion's advantage. Um, the individual who was kind of running this match was Okan. Okan was like eliminating lots of people. Yeah, he. Uh, but the, I think he like double choke slam Show and Cheat Yo and like pin both of them. No, he threw both of them out with Kanemaru over the top rope. God, who was it? Somebody got double pinned. He double pinned somebody. Remember. He eliminated a lot of people, so they kind of gave him a lot of shine, and he was sort of like the guy. But at the end of the match, you had a lot of the Bullet Club and Chaos members come in, and they eliminated him. So once that happened, you literally had half Bullet Club, half Chaos. Obviously, Yano's the champion. He's from Chaos. And as the match continued, the Chaos members got eliminated, and it came down to like just Yano and a couple Bullet Club members. He used his Tom Fulry, his, you know... Um, all that stuff, his shenanigans, and he was able to bamboozle them and eliminate most of the members, but the one remaining Bullet Club member was Chase Owens. And, you know, while he was eliminating people, a lot of the eliminations were with handcuffs. So you had a lot of people who were still not active participants in the match, but still, like, in the ring or at ringside, and that kind of played a role. That kind of created the opening to where Chase Owens was able to uh, you know, get the jewel heist, his the jewel heist, and then and the, the package, package pile driver, driver. Yep, and pick up the one, two, three. He has finally unseated Yano. He took a look at the KOPW provisional. Keep in mind, it's not the KOPW title; it's the provisional lineal KOPW trophy. Right. So he has to hold on to it till the end of the year if he wants to be the actual champion. He is the interim champion until the end of the year. And then at that point, he will become the champion, which when you become the champion, it means nothing because you, <laughs> the moment you become the champion, you, it's like your title reign dies immediately. Right. So, um, but he looked at the trophy and he's like, oh, that's ugly. We got to do something about that. So I'm, I'm assuming like he's coming out with a trophy next week with like stirrups and like a lasso. A bandana. Maybe. 
a bandana, maybe like a cowboy hat and some shit. So, um, you know, two belts, uh, two belts. Owens, you know, <laughs> he's got the, the, you know, the funny thing is like, I don't think he's really the Texas heavyweight champion. Yeah. We talked about this. I feel like they're that the belt kind of got revived somewhere else. Yeah. I think that they, uh, might be lying to us. They wouldn't do that in wrestling, right? No, not at all. It's weird. It's weird. Uh, um, <laughs> we had a question here from a uh, Reddit user Viking Pain. The thoughts on the Texas heavyweight champion Chase Owens possibly being involved in the G1. It looks like Uncle Dave may have spoiled his involvement this year in the recent Observer. So I'm guessing he's taking the Fale Udro spot. So yeah, Dave did mention this also on Wrestling Observer Radio. The reason that Chase won the Rambo and became KOPW was to build him up to being in the G1 that he's going to be in this year's G1 Climax. Someone's got to do jobs, you know? Someone's got to play spoiler, you know? Yeah, and I mean, I would definitely take Chase over Udro, so I'm hoping a situation where both of them are not in this. It is Chase taking Udro's spot. You know, I used to be a really big Chase Owens supporter, if you've listened to the show for a while. At a certain point, I just... It's not that he's not good. He's always been as good as he was. So that's never changed. It's just his lot in life, his like slotment in slotment, it's not even a word. His slotting in in the company, you know, where he's aligned, it's it's not really gonna change. But you know, he'll be um, like you said, I would prefer him over Jiro or Folly. I don't know if that's true. I really question what kind of connections Dave has in New Japan. Other than like Fumi Saito, now that the elite are gone. So to me, that doesn't mean for sure that he's going to be in the G1, but provided he is, I would prefer that of Yujiro Fale, you know? Yeah. And, you know, we really don't see Yujiro against guys like Okada or Tanahashi, Ibushi. Like, we don't really see a lot of that. So I think this could be a really like kind of break. Yeah. We don't see okay. oh, we don't see Owens against guys like Tanahashi and Okada a lot of times, so I feel like this could be like a real breakout moment for him um, and a chance for him to shine and have some really good matches. Yeah, we shall see. Um, this is going to open up the show. Uh, opening match of the night: the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Tag Team Title Match as the reigning champions, the Bull Club, El Fantasma, and Taiji Shimori, defended and defeated. The challenging team, the mega coaches, Rocky Romero, Ryazuki Taguchi, 20 minutes, 50 sec- 56 seconds. One thing I will say um, before we go into that, because there was only technically five matches on the main show, almost every match got essentially 20 minutes or more, which is a lot for Tokyo Dome show. So these guys got a lot of time. Jeremy, what were your thoughts on this one? I really enjoyed this matchup here with uh, Bull Club and Mega Coaches. I thought they did a good job kind of building this back up with Rocky coming back in and some of the stuff they did on the build-up to this match on the Summer Struggle Tour. But this kind of reminded me of like a traditional you know, dome show opener where you have the junior tag team titles on the line, you know, like a Young Bucks first or Punky 3K or you know, Young Bucks versus Rapungi Vice, kind of a high-energy, um, high-flying matchup here. Obviously, the big story here, they're trying to figure out um, if ELP has the loaded boot uh, in the, the sudden death super kick, so that was kind of a big uh, spot on that match. Um, 
which a lot of uh, Rocky was the one they were, they were getting the heat on in this matchup, making the hot tag to uh, to Gucci at one point. Uh, ELP did a lot of cool stuff in this match. They had the uh, the CR2 spot they did from the singles match, except this time he went for the CR2. Rocky got the Rana. ELP rolled out and hit the Styles Clash. He hit the V trigger. Was looking for the one wing angel like he always does. Rocky was able to reverse that. He did this crazy uh, Asai moonsault where the guys were like on the other side of the railing and he um, like moonsaulted over the railing and hit those guys. That was a crazy spot. Did you see his uh, Twitter post about Marifuji not being able to latch his shoes? Yeah, because somebody posted like the Marifuji doing a similar spot and he like killed himself on the guardrail. Um, ELP was like, yeah. You know, Mary, yeah, Mary Fuji couldn't lace my boots. <laughs> Which is, you know, I'll, I'll tell you what, I've come around on ELP to a certain extent, and I've come to appreciate him. Plus, I think working in New Japan has actually improved a lot of the complaints I had quite a bit, especially since it's been a couple years. Like, I'll take 2021 ELP all day over, like, 2018 um, El Fantasmo, for sure. But, um and it, it's crazy that it's been that long, by the way. It doesn't even feel like he's been in the company that long at all. I know. Yeah, it's crazy. But, yeah, the idea – that idea that, like, Marifuji is nowhere in the league of ELP is, like, so <laughs> yeah. fucking – that's, like – that's like him being like Tanahashi can't lace my boots. You yeah. Know? You're talking about one of the like 10 best like pro wrestlers ever. Like, you know, I'm, I'm way more a Marifuji guy than I ever was a Kenta guy. Like I think Marifuji is like maybe the best Noah wrestler of all time. Yeah. And <laughs> this dude's like, he can't lace my boots. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck off, dude. <laughs> yeah. But uh, his side moonsault was awesome. He's uh, so funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, then he had a the sudden death was hit on Rocky, but then uh, Taguchi made him hit Ishimori, and then he was able to get the boot off. He was trying to show the ref what was in the boot. Ref was distracted. He was able to do the low blow, hit the CR two one two three ELP and Taiji retain. Yeah, so we kind of um, really wondered quite a bit how that finish would play out. Um, and as I kind of speculated, Rocky did eat the big sudden impact. Um, I went back and rewatched that finish from the week prior. One thing I didn't—I don't think I realized last week was that as time was expiring, he actually kicked out of the sudden impact. Did you notice that? No, I didn't. So actually, as think, time was, yeah, 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 because that because he because ELP's post match, he was saying he didn't hit him in the right spot. Yeah, he actually did, but that was part of it, was that, like, he didn't get all of it. Like, there was the distraction from the towel, and then he grabbed, uh, ELP grabbed the towel, and then landed the sudden impact, but, or the sudden, is it sudden death? Sudden death, yeah. God, I always call it sudden impact. Uh, He landed the sudden death, and then, um, yeah, as the time was expiring at, like, two, Rocky gave, like, a weak kick out. Yeah, and it was like, oh, he kicked out of the sudden death, but it w- it wasn't like official, you know. But uh, yeah, Rocky ate the sudden death. Taguchi was able to get the the boot off. One thing I did not like was when he took the boot off. Um, it's not a boot, really. It's a wrestling uh, shoe. It's a wrestling shoe, which is normal. Most guys that wear kick pads and tights do wear wrestling shoes, but he's wearing like 
some flimsy ass. I don't know what they were. They were like some Asics or something. Like basic, and yeah, the very basic wrestling shoe. Your first ever wrestling shoes that you get. They're like the most basic wrestling shoes, which they're like cloth, you know, which is fine. But you think, like to me, if they're running this gimmick that he's loading up the boot, there's no way there was anything in that shoe. <laughs> Taguchi sold it like there was something in the shoe. Like he looked in and he was like, oh, you know, like he like just nutted himself. Like that's the kind of like look he had. And then he like hands it to Red Shoes and then he gets punched in the dick. And then they never like go back to it. You know, they're, I, if, if they went through all that trouble to take the shoe off and like Taguchi knows what's in there and expose it, why didn't like post match Taguchi be like, yo, He's got tight. He's got adamantium plates in the shoe. You well, know? on on Twitter, Taguchi was like he he did not find the secret. He said it was a message that said "F you, Taguchi" in the shoe. Oh, that's what it said in the shoe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> that's funny, bro. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Like to me, I'm thinking he's wearing like steel-toed like Tims or something. You know, mm-hmm. like just fucking stomping a mud hole, people. Like. <laughs> fucking people up there's actually these shoes on like uh instagram that i get like you know how you get targeted for ads yeah there's these shoes i don't know what they are but like there's a dude walking on nails and shit and like (laughs) he takes like a giant anvil and he drops him on his foot and he's fine it's like some sort of like heavy duty but they look like tennis shoes they're like green but they're like badass shoes. They're like all like steel inside. And like you can like walk, like they don't get punctured or they're like, and I'm like, dude, what, what, what kind of stuff am I looking up on Instagram and online that like people think that I want to buy these like badass like metal <laughs> shoes. Maybe, uh, maybe Instagram is trying to give you a, uh, a new gimmick. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I'm going to, um, find that ad and direct message it to, uh, Phantasm. I'm like, hey, when you're ready to do the big reveal, you know, maybe you can get an endorsement deal out of it. With these dudes. <laughs> yeah, swipe but up yeah. to use the code. But um, good opener. This for me, weakest show of the match or weakest uh, match of the show. But like I mentioned, I felt like all throughout the night, each match got better and better. For this one, I would have gone like three and a half, which I thought was a really solid opening like rating and um i like the story and yeah i thought i liked the that's the hook that i talked about the story you know what's in the shoe you know yeah i went uh 3.75 on this match i, I really liked it. i thought i had a lot of energy um a lot of high flying we, we've talked about the, the junior matches lately haven't there haven't been a ton of flying and i thought a lot of flying here in this match great story great build i feel like if this had a crowd i would have gone higher but yeah great way to kick off the main card so that's going to take us to the next match of the night as the IWGP junior heavyweight title was on the line as Robbie Eagles challenges the the defending champion, El Desperado. Yeah, so, you know, Robbie Eagles here coming back um, to New Japan from Australia after being, you know, off for a while. And they've kind of built this rivalry up with uh, him and uh, Desperado here getting, the you know, calling his shot after uh, Despy. Uh, had defended against Taiji Ishimori, so I thought there was some uh, good setup here in this match. Uh, both guys were working over the legs here, um, and in the matches building up to this match, uh, Despy had uh, hit 
Robbie Eagles leg with um, a chair. So Eagles was already coming in with an injured leg and uh, Despy targeted that also to set up the, uh, the, the pinche loco or excuse me, actually the, the numero dos and then uh, ELP or excuse me, keep mixing up names here. Eagles was going for Despy's knee to set up the Ron Miller special. So both guys Going after the, the legs here. Uh, match here. Got a lot of time as well. 19 minutes, 56 seconds. Uh, came down to uh, Eagles hitting the 450 on the leg to hit the, except the Ron Miller special and Despy tapping out. And we have a, a new junior champion, Robbie Eagles. Yeah, I was very surprised by this. Um, just because we talked about, you know, the way they've kind of treated Robbie in the past. And not to say he was mistreated. That would be, you know, an overstatement. But um, in the most recent outing that he had with the company during the Super Juniors tournament, he was not given very many main events. He was kind of a 500 guy. They kind of kept him middle of the road. And at the time, too, that tournament was occurring when – you know, Super Juniors got moved from May to the end of the year. We didn't have hardly any non-domestic guys in the tournament aside from Robbie Eagles. And when you kind of compared who they had available in, in that tournament, most of them, I would have thought that he was a higher up trajectory than most of them. But, you know, that's just the way the, cook, the cookie crumbles. And him coming back, to me, obviously – the big money match that's on the docket is Desperado and um, Hiromu. Uh, one thing that's worth mentioning, when this show started, Hiromu Takahashi was announced as being medically cleared for competition. He kind of came out and opened up the show, as he's done on you know, many previous shows. We've actually seen him do lots of jobs, you know, manning the cameras, ring crew, yeah, making dis- announcements, dis- yeah. all sorts of stuff. So in my, in my like train of thought, I was just like, yeah, they're building to a Hiromu Desperado match and that will be next. And Robbie's just kind of the flavor of the month. And then they go out there and they have a great match. And I know for some people, this might not have been their speed, but like, I'll tell you one thing, Robbie Eagles, not only is he a fantastic wrestler, but dude, he is a consistent fucking seller in a believable way man i mean this was awesome leg selling um which really added to the drama of the match and and kind of kept things in doubt and by the time that he was setting up for like that 450 to the knee and the ron miller special and everything i was like can this guy even like climb the ropes is like kind of what i was thinking you know right i just didn't expect them to go with him as the next champion it seemed that he, to me that he was coming in a little cold. And maybe that's my fault for not paying as much attention on the undercards. Maybe there was something there that could have, you know, shined the light. Maybe they were heating him up a lot more on those undercard tags than I realized. But uh, either way, he went out there. They put on a fantastic match. I went 3.75 on this. I thought it was an awesome, awesome undercard uh, junior heavyweight tag team match. Or, uh, Jack- uh, title match and um i was genuinely surprised to see him pick up the win and i was happy the first australian born iwgp champion in new japan history and uh you know the first junior title win for robbie eagles well deserved 
fantastic match. I hope they run it back. But it looks like uh, before that happens, we've got a date with um, Robbie Eagles and Hiromu on the horizon. Yeah, and yeah, Hiromu, when he announced he was clear, he also announced that he was challenging the winner of the title match. So we kind of knew going ahead of time, no matter who won, Hiromu was going to be the next challenger. Uh, I want three and a half on this match. I, I thought it was a really good match. I just wish maybe Robbie would have gotten to do a little bit more flying. You had both guys. Uh, selling these for me kind of slowed the match down a little bit, but I still thought it was uh, very good. But I, I was a little confused by the booking. Like I don't, I love Eagles. I'm glad he won. But at the same time, I felt the the more kind of laid out story, like you mentioned, was Despy and Hiromu, and especially with them going to MetLife Dome. I feel like Despy and Hiromu for the title are a really big match. They could have done that show, and they just kind of threw it away to go with. Hiromu and Eagles, which I think obviously Hiromu and Eagles is going to be a great matchup, but I feel from like a story perspective and trying to make a show feel bigger, I feel like maybe Despy Hiromu was the way to go. I can tell you what I think is probably happening long term, and I'm not saying specific ways that we're going to get there, although I think it's not that hard to figure out. Pretty sure Desperado versus Hiromu in the Tokyo Dome is the aim for early next year. Which means one of those guys has got to be champion by that point. One of those guys has to win Super Juniors. I'll let you guys kind of sit and ponder and figure it out. I've already figured it out in my mind. But uh, why do it at the MetLife Stadium when you've got the Tokyo Dome down the down the road, you know, in January? So that's what that's why once I saw that they were doing it this way, it made a lot of sense to me, honestly. Gotcha. And we have some questions here from Dom Homie 101. The thoughts on Robbie Eagles winning the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championship. Was it the right call to pull the trigger on Robbie? Will he just be a transitional champion? And he also asked if Despy losing the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championship. What are your guys' thoughts on his title reign? Will he get another run with the title? What is next for him? Great questions. My main thing is, you know, it's the junior title. While it's very prestigious, it changes hands quite a bit. Uh, in a certain sense, it's one of the most competitive uh, divisions in New Japan. It's very hard to hold on to that title for any significant length of time, especially if you're defending it uh, pretty often. Um, and for first-time champions, it's not uncommon for them to have, just like the IWGB title, shorter title reigns. I thought Desperado had a great first title reign. Um, you know, could it have been potentially better if circumstances were different sure but i think that he made the most of what he could especially those early months um you know that stuff was really exciting um so i thought that he, he did great and i'll tell you what right now i'm pretty sure desperado is going to win the super juniors that's my that's my prediction right now early call he's one of the best the super juniors come november december so i think desperado's more than fine as far as robbie eagles um based on the the business pr projections that i just kind of laid out i think this is the right move um i think he's a guy that they needed to kind of pull the trigger on years ago i think that this is kind of coming a little late but you know better late than never and um could he be a quote-unquote transitional champion sure but you know with this kind of company if you're bushy and you win the title and then you're a transitional guy. Maybe you never win it back. I and mean, that's kind of seemed to kind of be the case. Yeah. 
But if you're if you're Robbie Eagles and win the title, and you defend it once or twice, maybe maybe even just once, and then you lose it. I don't know that I consider him a transitional champion. A transitional champion is a guy who wins the belt for the purpose, sole purpose of losing it, and then there's no plans going forward with him. A la, let, like, let's say, Jinder Mahal, for example. You know? Um, Stan Stasiak, someone like that. But to me, I think that this is establishing uh, Robbie Eagles as a championship caliber talent in the junior division, regardless. So even if he does drop it in short order, this w- my bet, this is not the last time you see Robbie Eagles holding junior gold in New Japan Pro Wrestling. Right. Way. And right. And with uh Will Ospreay um, you know, going up to heavyweight that left the spot open in the junior division for a Gaijin uh junior to kind of be the, the top, you know, Gaijin of that division. So I think that's kind of the spot that except for Robbie Eagles and you know, for whatever reason they weren't really going there was last year Super Juniors, but I mean they've they've always kind of had Robbie in uh high regards and he's been put in some big spots and so yeah, I think this will be a good thing for him being the champ here. Um, Robbie, Robbie Eagles, junior champion before El Fantasmo. <laughs> What's up? <laughs> um, I, I think that's that, that should be a title match that happens. Those guys have great chemistry. There's a great history and rivalry there. Uh, so hopefully uh, Eagles holds it long enough to we get a, an ELP matchup there. Uh, but yeah, it's gonna be really interesting what happens with Eagles and Hiromu at uh, Wrestle Grand Slam and MetLife Dome. If he's just gonna drop it to Hiromu, or is he gonna hold it for a little while? Uh, as far as the other thing, the other thing too is like, had Desperado won it, sure they could have done the Hiromu match. But aside from that, who else is left for him? Right, right, right now. Obviously, if borders open, that changes. But like. There wasn't a lot more he could do, you know. Right, he kind of cleaned out what was there, um, what was know, available. Yeah, the only thing was yeah the Hiromu match. But uh, you want to wrestle Tiger Mask Wato? <laughs> What's next? Uh, if Rocky was sticking around, maybe he could have uh, wrestled Rocky. Rocky needs to pick up a, a big win or two. Oh, in this company, you don't gotta do that. You just call your shot, right? Exactly. Oh yeah, never mind. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, I thought Despy had um, a decent reign for circumstances. Uh, obviously, with COVID and the way tours are all set up, and they're not being a ton of juniors right now. I, th- I think they did the best they could. Uh, I would have liked to see him retain, like I said, and, and face Hiromu at MetLife. But I think you're, you know, being ahead here and seeing the bigger picture, and that's Hiromu and Despy at Wrestle Kingdom. Great. Um... I went four star, or I went uh, three and three quarters on this match. So really, really liked it. Um, the next match of the night, first singles match, special singles match, as the Rainmaker Kazushiko Okada takes on Jeff Cobb. Yeah, this match was awesome. Like we've been saying, Cobb is on fire um, in this heel role, being in the part of the United Empire. He's so strong and he's so athletic. Um, you know, one of the first spots, big spots he does is he does Okada's drop kick to all on the top. He had Okada sitting on the top rope and he did the, the drop kick that Okada would normally do, sending Okada flying out and obviously working on the the back of Okada uh, throughout the match. You know, that's kind of been um, the story this year is you know 
with Okada's, you know, quote unquote bad back and Cobb, you know, throwing him around and working over the back in this match. Um, it's a lot of cool power moves. Oh, where he caught Okada from the plancha and did like this running, he did a running delayed suplex. So it was super awesome. So he did a ton of cool spots in this match. There's a lot of times in this feud during the, um, the actual preview matches as well as this match where Jeff Cobb has shown his uh, ability to kind of read and counter Kazuchika Okada. A lot of those counters uh, involved him catching him and throwing him for a fucking loop, which was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing I will say, this might be a little controversial. Now, I know that this distinction is something that is solely awarded by keeping it strong style and our listeners. But I still kind of feel like it's a, a bit of a prestigious award at this point for how long we've been running. The keeping it strong styles, Carl got strong style wrestler of the year. The guy that is the best badass who has the most realistic fights right now for me, Jeff Cobb is leading that poll. And that might be a little controversial because you might say to yourself that, um, Shingo Takagi's obviously right now probably the front runner for wrestler of the year. But while Shingo's still been a badass and has had some wars and things like that, a lot of his matches are kind of more in line with that, you know, major main event feel, the house style of New Japan. He's still bringing his like hard hitting uh, nature to it. But like for my money, Night in and night out on the preview matches, in the singles matches. Nobody's kicking as much ass in New Japan this year in 2021 as fucking Jeff Cobb. And, like, he showcased it here in this match with, like, Okada. Like, he was manhandling Okada. And one thing I loved about the match, too, was, like, the athleticism that was on display from from, um, Jeff Cobb. You mentioned it, Jeremy. And, in fact, I kind of feel like it was his undoing. In that he was trying to play a game of anything you can do, I can do better. Yeah. And that's what allowed Okada to find openings. Right. Like the one point where he's uh, going for uh, like a tour of the island. He's like trying to do like a Raymaker tour of the island. And Okada was able to catch him with a big drop kick. And so, yeah, whenever he kind of tried to, you know, up the ante with the athleticism, Okada found the openings to kind of catch him. What's the move? And that's kind of what happened here towards the end. Um, you know, Cobb, he's like a, a big running headbutt. And, you know, once again, he's trying to, you know, show his athleticism and power. And Okada was able to catch him, which, which I call the the Omega Cradle, that that uh, <laughs> <laughs> that cradle that he used to get the, the first uh, pinfall in the, the two out of three falls from Dominion against Kenny. And he also used it against Jericho as well. Uh, he was able to, right. to catch Cobb with that. Yeah, um, I'm I'm a big fan of that move just because it is like the callback like that. Um, Okada has a, at this point a few different cradles that he's kind of like um, em, employed in his uh, you know later wrestling career here in the past couple of years, but like no, none to more effect than this you know sit down cradle that he does. And as soon as he hit it on Jeff Cobb, I was like, oh god, he won. <laughs> The, uh, the one move in this match that was the most like, holy shit, I can't believe they just did that, was the part, the part where um, 
Okada, I believe, I could be misremembering this, but I believe Okada tried to do a plancha to the outside. Yeah, that's the spot I was talking about earlier, where yeah, he uh, Cobb catches him and does that running delayed suplex. On the outside, though. Yeah, on the outside, yeah. Yeah, bro. Like, that was something where, like, I could understand why they did it, because they did it. I don't know how hard the Tokyo Dome stage is. I'm sure it's no cakewalk, you know? Yeah. But... I would bump on that a million times over versus like the actual earth. <laughs> <laughs> so like, that's the only reason where I feel like maybe that's, that's, that is one reason you see guys take risks on the outside that they don't normally take at the Tokyo Dome. I don't know if you've ever noticed them. Like they're on a wood uh, platform, still dangerous. I mean, we saw like Rick Rude's career ended, you know, um, in, in a similar situation in Japan with, uh, when he was wrestling Sting. So, you know, it's not like there's no risk, but at the same time, you can do a lot more. You can take a vertical back suplex and, and be Kazushiko Okada in the Tokyo Dome on a wood platform versus hitting that cold hard cement, you know? So that was pretty crazy. Yeah, that was a crazy spot. Also, the, the spin cycle, there was like a big German suplex where he just like tossed Okada. So, yeah, a lot of crazy stuff. He did a, a, a doctor bomb for a near fall on Okada. Yeah. Big big shout out to uh, <laughs> to Doctor Death Steve Williams. That was pretty cool, and and also like it's cool because like he's kind of facilitating that mold or that role in New Japan right now. And actually, just in Japan, like you know, there was a time where like you had big giant gaijin monsters in both the big two, but now there's not really a big two. And with guys like uh, um, oh man, what's his name? Who's who's the big monster that just went to Impact from All Japan? What's his name? Oh, uh, Doring, Joe Doring. Yeah, and Joe Doring's like kind of past his like physical prime, but like there was a time where like you even had guys like that kind of floating around Japan. But right now, I mean, there's not a lot of big muscle bound freaks running around Japan. You know, you're not seeing too much of that in All Japan or New Japan or the Indies. So it's like Jeff Cobb's kind of like the one guy. Right. Who's like, you know, he is Vader, he is Brody, he is Hanson, he's Gordy, he's he's Dr. Death, all wrapped in run because all wrapped in the one because he's the one guy right now. Yeah, and definitely kind of filling in, you know, that Michael Elgin role of that kind of uh you know, powerhouse guys and who would do these kind of powerhouse moves and also some, you know, athletic moves as well. So really kind of stepping in that shoes and really excelling and maybe even going beyond Big Mike. Big Mike's in jail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Okada, he was able to outsmart and survive Jeff Cobb. And many times in these matches, I've talked about this, like the Ibushi match with Jeff Cobb very recently, where I felt like he outsmarted and survived Jeff Cobb. Like right. he didn't, I mean, he, he beat him, but he had to survive the guy. And that's another similar story we got here where Okada had to survive him at 19 minutes and 23 seconds. Um, it felt like the way this match ended, while it was conclusive, it wasn't definitive in the sense that these guys have unfinished business. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit later. My initial thinking was like, this opens up uh, a great opportunity for like a G1 match down the line is what I was thinking. But it seems like they might have a date even sooner than that. Right, yeah, there was an angle from today's show where, you know, Cobb, after this match, said he was leaving, going back to the U.S. to kind of, you know, 
re you know recoup and kind of get a new game plan, but ended up showing up and attacking Okada on today's uh, Corkin Hall show. So yeah, in my mind, I feel like they're setting up a match for MetLife Dome. You can't believe those Empire guys when they say they're going home, unless it's Will Osprey, then you can believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I like this match a lot. Um, I went four stars on this match. I could see someone going higher. I'm pretty sure you're a little bit higher on this. Um, my feeling is that these guys have a much better match in them than even this one. I felt like they only did a fraction of what they're capable of. Yeah, I definitely felt like it was one of those cases where yeah, they were holding back because they know a bigger match is coming. You know, we're going to be talking about the the MetLife Dome. You know, matches announced so far, and only. There's only three matches announced for one night, and there's two nights. So I definitely think a Cabo Okada match could probably happen on night one and them get to do the, the high-level match that they're capable of doing. Awesome. And that is going to bring us to the well, semi. Hold on. We had a, a, oh. a question here from EMJ Does PR. He says, with Okada You're seemingly right. out of the main title picture for at least the next two title challenges, what's his best interim option? A, KOPW Iron Man match versus Chase. B, <laughs> Mega Aces tag title run. Or C, Excursion to Impact. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty funny. Um, you know, I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll counter with the D. Um, I always like to counter with the D. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I'm totally fine with Kazushiko Okada being in a special singles role like he was here with Jeff Cobb for the time being, you know? Remember when Kenny wasn't the champion and he was just kind of out there having singles feuds and, like, just tearing it up? Yeah. Why can't Okada do that? You know, every time Okada's been non-champion, they've given him some bullshit, you know? They made him wear red and put red dye in his hair and carry balloons around and act crazy the one time. The other time he had to wrestle Gato and fucking Ujiro for like eight months straight. Like, why can't he just wrestle like great wrestlers? Maybe it's because he's too good and people will clamor for him to get the title shot right away. But maybe maybe you could change that by putting him in some blood feuds. I mean, it seems to work out pretty fine with Cody Rhodes. I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't understand. Like, you know, and I think this is a good step in the right direction. I'm fine with him being the guy that has awesome feuds with guys like Jeff Cobb in the upper mid card until time is ready to pull the trigger on him again, you know? Right. I think it's a great way to kind of keep him hot is yeah. Have him get in these feuds of guys like Cobb and have some great matches. So then when it's ready, you can just kind of pull the trigger and get him back in the, the title picture. The other thing too, is like, you know, he's clearly kind of above the never title. The never title is like the number two belt. But like he's kind of above it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> he's Hulk Hogan. Like, I mean, he, he, can't he, be the, he was above Hulk the, Hogan? Yeah, he was above the IC when it was there. Right. Hulk Hogan can't be intercontinental champion, you know? Yeah. Like, and neither can Okada. That's why, like, we should have known Okada was never going to win that double title match because, like, remember the one time Hogan and Warrior wrestled? There's no way they're going to put the IC belt on Hogan. Like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's who Okada is. So, like, yeah, but I'm fine with him, like – um, you know, he, like, his story is that he's not going to be the never champion. His story is that he's going to be the world champion or bust. He's never won this world title before, and he didn't beat Shingo, and Shingo kind of has his number. So, like, you know, it's not like he needs to find himself, but, like, 
he's sort of on a quest, you know, and I like it. I like the story they're telling with him. And he's, he's got personal feuds going on that like in the past with Okada for the most part, and this is kind of what makes Okada unique. Aside from Tanahashi, almost every single feud he's had his entire career has centered around one thing primarily, the title, and nothing else. Right. You know? Whereas other, there's a lot of other guys. Like, I listened to the uh, Kenny Omega uh, interview on Wrestling Observer Radio this past week, and he talked about how he's got built-in feuds with all sorts of people all over the world, whether they have it or not. He's like, you know, maybe one day we can run AJ and me. We got history. Maybe we could do Jay White. We got history. Abushi, we got history. Tanahashi, we got history. There's history there. But, like, Okada has his, for Okada being on top since, like, 2012, 2013, he's got no history with anybody. He's got match history, but there's no emotional history for most of those feuds. I think now is the time where you start building emotionally-based feuds with him and the current crop of talent so that when he does become champion, it's not just the story of history, legacy. It's, like... Well, I'm defending this title, but you and me, we got old country beef. Right, we gotta run it back. You, you know, you you, you jumped me at the uh, the Grand Slam. We got we gotta run it back. Right, you know, and he doesn't have that with anybody, really. I mean, even Naito, he doesn't really have that. Abushi, you know, it's kind of crazy if you think about it. Yeah, that is crazy. Yeah, that's a great point. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, the sixth or the fifth match of the night. The semi-main event, we have the IWGP tag team titles on the line as uh, Los Inganabas de Japón, Sonata, and Tetsuya Naito, the current reigning champions, defend their titles against the challengers, the former champions, the dangerous tigers, Taichi, and Zack Sabre Jr. Yeah, so very uh, well-built feud here between these guys. Like we talked about their singles matches building up into this match, and like we mentioned Zack Sabre Jr. was the target here. You know, he was the weak link. He was the one that dropped the fall in the last tag team match. He's the one who he got a draw and then lost against Naito. He's coming in here with the banged up knee. So he he was the focus here in uh, Sonata and Naito pretty much working over Sabre a majority of this match. And there was uh, one part in this match where they were just like, working on the knee, working on the knee, and uh, Sabre was in there for a long time in the match before he, he can get Tai Chi back in. Yes. Um, that was, in my opinion, very much influenced by some of those classic Champions Carnival matches. Um, the 88 finals comes to mind specifically where one of the members is you know, injured and unable to tag in and the other individual is kind of called upon to be the guy inside the ring defending against both people and actually the 81 finals is kind of the finish of the 81 all japan uh tag team finals is kind of like that as well so kind of a similar story that they've done multiple times which makes sense too because it again in this match you had uh sonata and tai chi and both of them were kind of uh, harkening back to some of their All Japan influences as well, um, which was cool. But yeah, we talked extensively about the singles matches leading into this match and the prior match two weeks ago in Osaka where Dangerous Techers dropped the belts. 
and Zack Sabre kind of seemed to be the target, and LIJ was, they were sort of ruthless here, especially Tetsuya Naito, you know? Um, he wasn't necessarily, like, the aloof, tranquilo guy. Like, he was sort of vicious and a little bit ruthless in this match and really had a, a concerted, consistent effort to take out the knee of Zack Sabre. And it paid off for almost the whole match until it just did Yeah, I mean, also, yeah, that was the, the clear focus here, they Attacking the knee, he got like that death lock thing at one point and really cranked on that. And uh, Zach really had to fight uh, towards the ropes there. Uh, but you know, this was kind of set up for Zach to have to redeem himself and you know, prove that he wasn't the weak link. So even though majority of the match he was getting beat on with a lot of heat on him, he was able to uh, come back, hit the, the Zach driver. Uh, which allowed uh, Tai Chi to use his like this new like sumo elbow thing he's been doing, and uh, Zach was able to use the European clutch on Naito to get the win. So he avenges the loss against Naito and proves he wasn't the weak link and uh, gets a big win here for Techers to get the titles back. Yeah, it's funny that you uh, mentioned the idea of um, Team Hell No, and then. There's kind of a little bit of a similar uh, story here. I mean, you've got the best technical wrestler in the world trying to go out there and prove that he's not the weak link. Right. Wonder where I've ever heard that story from before. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I thought that, you know, the funny thing too, this match went 37 minutes, 58 seconds, very long, longest match of the night, just a few seconds longer than even the world title match in the main event. Um, and I saw people complain about this. And for all the love that Dangerous Techers get within certain circles of New Japan fandom, there seems to be a subsect of fans and pundits that are just not big fans of the Dangerous Techers and their style of wrestling for whatever reason. Um, and amongst those same kinds of uh, voices, there's people who were kind of complaining about the match length here. And I will say this. I thought overall the show was too long, which sounds crazy. You know, it's five matches. Each one was getting 20 minutes. I think that's another thing that kind of uh, along with uh, now in front of like a live exuberant crowd. I don't think the show's too long. I think every match hits all their marks and strides. And if you have a live crowd, the show just fucking rocks. But because there wasn't a live crowd, 37 minutes, 58 seconds, a little bit too long. Most of those 20 minute matches on the other card, a little too long. I felt like with the type of atmosphere they had, keeping it a little tighter would have been better. Right. And I know we were we were actually guessing that this match was going to be a shorter, more concise version of the match they had in Osaka. That ended up not being the case. All that being said, I'll tell you what, I loved this match. I really love this match. I liked it better. Then Okada and Jeff Cobb, I thought it was the most well-built match. And I think a lot of the uh, criticisms that are being lobbied against Dangerous Techers and against the IWGP or heavyweight tag team scene, I think most of those individuals uh, probably are not paying as close attention to what's going on in Japan because of how the product is being perceived currently, you know? Yeah. But, like, this is... This is the best the heavyweight tag team scene's been since the like early 2010s when like uh, 
when um, Tim Koji was like having their monster run because I mean we've been asking for this exact thing to happen to have meaningful guys in you know and guys like Sonata and Naito have opportunities title runs and to wrestle established tag teams like the Dangerous Techers and I felt like they're not going to have a park and I felt like this match was awesome the story was so different from the Os- we we talked a, f- a few weeks ago about how great that Osaka match was and then they turn around in the Tokyo Dome and even if you weren't as high on it as me I think I'm like four and a half on this to be honest mm. which is probably my tag team match of the year honestly um I, but even if you're not, even if you're like in that four camp uh, or lower, like there's no denying that between this match, the match prior, and then the the three, the four singles matches they had, I think we're looking at a few of the year contender right here, and it might even be the winner at this point based on how New Japan's gone. I yeah. love this match. Yeah, definitely a great matchup. I was uh, a little bit lower. I was in the, the four star range here on this matchup, and for me, I, I think it might have just been the atmosphere that kind of killed it here for me because they were kind of doing that epic, long style match. It was a lot of great near falls and great near submissions, and especially with the way that Zach was getting beat on and the heat that was on Zach, and with those guys kind of being. You know, quasi Bayface, you know, more Bayface leaning tweeners now. I feel like a hot crowd would have gotten behind Zach and would have wanted to see him, you know, come back and do a fiery comeback. He would have been like that underdog that they cheer for. And I just felt like this match was really, I mean, all matches are missing the crowd energy, but I felt like this match especially was just missing that interaction from the crowd with the epic style they were trying to do and the selling they were trying to do. And that's why I'm a little bit lower on it. Can't disagree with you there. Uh, totally understand that. I feel like looking at the layout of the match and then also the way that they worked it, there's just so much All Japan 90s uh, influence here. Some of those very famous Holy Demon Army um, and, you know, Kobashi and Mizawa matches. Um, I would challenge some of those individual. That's the funny thing. It's like a lot of the individuals that don't like these dangerous techers matches tend to love 90s all japan and i'm like when you see these guys you're seeing the modern version of 90s all japan like i don't know what to tell you um but yeah um take us to the finish i know we don't want to this episode's going long so we gotta <laughs> but yeah uh so yeah i mentioned yeah zach was able to get the the european clutch she gets the win here they're celebrating <laughs> Oh, the awesome thing about that one was uh, Chris Charlson had a great call and commentary. He mentioned how when Naito went to go hit the Destino the first time in Osaka, Kevin Kelly had mentioned that there was perhaps a uh, counter in mind that Zach was trying to get, but he didn't have – he didn't Yeah, hit. yeah. And then in this match, he was able to counter the, the Destino into a European clutch, which came from literally like there was – Aside from the other the triangle choke spot he had on Naito after the uh, top rope hook and Rana, which was pretty sick, there wasn't much that like Saber was able to kind of offer. And at the very last minute, like he he snuck out a, a European clutch, like it was fucking awesome. Yeah, so yeah, big win there. And then post match, they're they're jaw jacking with each other, and then Yoshihashi and Goto come out and they want to be the next challengers for tag team titles. Well, they heard about Chase Owens being, you know, double champion, and they wanted to follow in his footsteps. So, 
Yeah, and this wouldn't be the first time we've seen Goto and Yoshihashi try and step up and make a challenge here. So, um, yeah, they're coming out here. And so we'll talk about what's coming up with these three teams. So then, uh, so then that takes us to the main event here. We have the defending IWGP World oh, Heavyweight. See, uh, sorry, we have a we missed a question here from uh, Dom Homie. Oh, He's, my bad. <laughs> said, uh, uh, thoughts on the state of the heavyweight tag division? It seems like we got some action with Dangerous Techers, Hashi and Goto, and the super duo of Sonata and Naito. Well, I kind of echoed some of some of those thoughts earlier uh, when I was answering the question and how uh, some of the events are transpiring are what we've been asking for and then you know i also agree with sort of what you laid out there don homie you know just the fact that i mean you, you kind of answer your own question in a certain sense it's like you know we've got you know all these different individuals involved in the tag division and that's awesome i mean what are your thoughts jeremy yeah i mean like you mentioned earlier this is what we have been asking for you know we we wanted a variety of teams from fresh teams we wanted some you know super teams we want to focus you know when has the tag titles ever like semi main evented a big show like this um, and try to do that epic style? So we're kind of heading in the right direction here and, and getting more of these kind of super teams or top teams. You know, guys aren't really doing anything and putting them together. So I think, yeah, tag division, it's, it's doing a lot better, especially since we kind of moved away from, you know, dangerous techers and GOD facing each other a hundred times um, on these tours. Yeah, I mean, and the other funny thing is like, if you do bring G.O.D. right back, you've got a whole slew of new teams that they also haven't faced yet, you know, so that could take you out till through the end of the year if you really wanted, you know. Right. Um, but that's going to take us to the main event, the match everyone uh, came for, the IWGB World Heavyweight title match. Uh, Shino Takagi defends against Kota. Oh, wait, no. Uh, it was announced shortly before this show that Hiroshi Tanahashi would be taking the place of Kota Ibushi as the challenger for Shingo's title. Yep, so that, that Kenta match ended up kind of being a de facto number one contender here. Tanahashi stepping up for his um, you know golden ace tag team partner. The ace found his way again into a dome main event for the <laughs> belt. Uh, you know what's funny about that? We did a... Um, when COVID first hit, we were talking about concept shows. One of them was uh, a concept where we talked about the individuals that had main evented like the Tokyo Dome the most times. And obviously, obviously like Tanahashi's in the top four, but we we're like, man, he's probably not going to ever do it again. And then somehow this motherfucker does it again, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, this match. Obviously, it was a last-minute kind of thing. There wasn't a, a ton of build to it, but, you know, these guys did have a match-of-the-year quality matchup in January at the new beginning for the Never title where Tanahashi beat Shingo. So, in a way, a story kind of came because Shingo had to prove himself. He had to beat Tanahashi. Tanahashi beat him at the beginning of the year for the Never title. So, now it's a big spot in the Dome against Tanahashi, um, and he had to prove that he could beat Tanahashi. It's, uh, you know, Dragon Gate versus New Japan here. And he he had to, you know, beat the ace. Yeah, I mean, there was definitely, like, um, he'd already beaten him, like you mentioned, for the Never title earlier in the year. But there's a big difference between fighting, you know, Hiroshi Tanahashi at New Beginning and then wrestling him in the Tokyo Dome. You know, there's something special about Hiroshi Tanahashi in the main event at the Tokyo Dome that, 
you know, can't really be defined necessarily. And so to kind of see someone who vanquished him earlier in the year come up and try to step to him again in that environment, that atmosphere. We talked about how the crowd wasn't what it was, but I will tell you, of all the matches, this is the one that was getting audible gasps. People were actually having a, a you know a tough time kind of containing themselves. So I do think that they, in a certain sense, even with their uh, incredible like uh, performances, they sort of transcended that limitation, you know, more so than anything else on the night did. Yeah, I definitely think these guys had the crowd in the palm of their hands. And again, like this is the match. This match also went over 37 minutes, and they were doing that epic main event style. But I feel like they did a better job. I don't know what it was. The, the crowd, just like you mentioned, they were more like invested in the gas and the ooing and the on. They couldn't control it. I felt like the, the clapping was a little bit louder than throughout the rest of the night. And I felt like the fans really enjoyed these main event. And these guys are, you know, master. Of the craft, uh, Tanahashi, one of the greatest of all time. Uh, Shingo, we talked about the incredible run he's been on this year, and these guys just had one hell of a matchup here. Uh, you know, story of the match. You had, you had Shingo kind of with the early advantage. Uh, obviously, Tanahashi kind of coming in weakened with that um, match, that main event he had with Kenta, and the uh, very next night too. Right, yeah, very next night, and taking the Bushi spot, not not ready for this matchup, and so Shingo had the early advantage here. You know, for the first pretty much for the first ten minutes, and kind of uh, beating down on Tanahashi and uh, wearing him out. Uh, Tanahashi, of course, even even like beating him in chain gra- grappling, like mm-hmm. early on, which was kind of uns- you know not expected. Yeah, um, and then Tanahashi used old faithful that dragon screw to kind of get some momentum back there. Um, had a lot of the the big signature spots. Um, we had uh, Tanahashi busting out the the high fly floor, high fly flow to the outside. Um, so you know it's a big match when Tanahashi's busting out that. Uh, you know doesn't care about his knees on this night. He he went for it here. He was going to give you you know main event Tanahashi dome Tanahashi that you expect. So he did that. Uh, Luckily, they talked about that where he kind of nailed that one perfectly. Like he definitely threw caution the wind and could have potentially hurt his knees. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, but like he he landed that one so perfectly, they're like, yeah, his knees didn't even touch anything. Like <laughs> the only thing that uh, looked like might have been a bad part of that landing, it looked like his face hit the shoulder of Shingo. Mm. You saw him grab his mouth almost immediately. But yeah. like as far as the knees go, that man was like, I'm gonna fly, <laughs> but I'm gonna protect myself. <laughs> yeah. Um, and again, he was using a lot of Shibata influence moves. He did the the low corner strikes into the corner drop kick at one point. Um, and then obviously Shingo came back hitting a you know wheelbarrow suplex. He was doing a lot of lariats and kind of trying to outpower Tanahashi. Uh, Tan did a super dragon screw at one point to regain control, and you had Shingo doing the dragon screw in the ropes to Tanahashi. Shingo doing his uh, his GTR, the Great Takagi Revolution, on the outside, <laughs> draping him on the guardrail. That was awesome. Uh, there was a great made in Japan near fall leading up into the 25 minute spot. Uh, he does the uh, that that super like Death Valley Driver last of the dragon off a top rope for a great near fall. Yeah, that yeah. was crazy. <laughs> yeah, Tanahashi doing a Kamagoye, which led into a high fly flow, which I I thought that was it. I thought Tanahashi was winning. Tana- Tanahashi hit him with the Kamagoye and then went up and uh, didn't he do? Both the standing and the laying high fly flow at that point, or was it just the one? I think it was just the the one laying high fly flow. Okay, gotcha. But yeah, uh, yeah. Once I saw that, I was like, 
oh my god, he fucking did it again. <laughs> but uh, uh, that was something that I loved is up to this point, you know, him channeling uh, Shibata and like everything that had been played into the the match the night prior and how that kind of influenced some of the the moves he chose to use in this match, especially a big headbutt. And then um, obviously Kotobushi not being able to be in the match, um, him kind of channeling him by using the Kamigoye, which was supposed to be like the move that was designed to surpass Tanahashi and Nakamura. And it was like, uh, Chris Charlton was like on the mic and he's like, but Tanahashi's using that very move to to surpass <laughs> Shingo Takagi. So, like, you know, um, it was just really great seeing him kind of incorporate both those story elements into the match, you know? Yeah. Uh, you, you, you mentioned that, that big uh, headbutt Shibata style, which is kind of cool. See, Tan- you don't really see Tanahashi doing a lot of headbutts, so that was kind of cool to see. I mean, he didn't do the Shibata style headbutt, like skull to skull. It, it was still a working headbutt, but like, absolutely, it's not part of his repertoire. Yeah, uh, Shingo hit a last of the dragon, but he wasn't able to cover Tanahashi, so that, that led into like, a strike exchange between both guys, and uh, Shingo just That like, strike exchange was awesome. And, oh, and that was another strange thing. Tanahashi was out striking Shingo most of the, most of the match. Mm-hmm. Every time they get into a strike exchange, he would win them. And it's like, I don't remember too many people beating Shingo in those strike exchanges. Kind of, It just shows you how fired up Tanahashi was and how motivated he was. Right, yeah, there's uh, one point where he was hitting a lot of uh, shotes during uh, strike exchanges and uh, got to the point where he was, you know, mustering up to go back on the top for a high fly flow and Shingo crawling on his hands and knees would cut off uh, Tanahashi from going up. He hits that super uh, last of the dragon, Tanahashi kicks out. Tanahashi kind of has his last kind of, you know, last kind of uh, bullets in the barrel there, hits some shotes, but then Shingo fires back, hits a lariat, last of the dragon, one, two, three. Shingo retains. There was also a counter of the last of the dragon into a fight into a uh, sling blade. Yes, that was dope. Which was kind of crazy. Um, yeah, bro, this match um, for me, uh, bordering on that four and a half, four and three quarters. I think I'm probably inclined for the four and three quarter. A low end match of the year candidate uh, for me this year in New Japan is still just out of this world. Excellent. Uh, perfect companion piece to the match that they had in uh, February. And, you know, another huge notch on Shingo Takagi. They mentioned how the last time any individual had won in the main event of the Tokyo Dome in their first try was Brock Lesnar in 2005. Since then, every other individual prior to Shingo who's been in the main event on their first try has lost. So, like, you know, he's the champion. He's beating legends. There's now a hit list of guys that, um, not just against Shingo, but just in general, have not won their first, you know, title challenge. And, you know, Tanahashi kind of joins that group. Yeah, so, yeah, kind of a, a great moment there for Shingo. And, yeah, kind of a great stat there. Then, unfortunately, you know, post-match, as Shingo is celebrating, lights go out. We get a video from Evil and Dick Togo. Lights come back on. Evil's there. Hits see everything is evil. On Chingo, and he is setting himself up as the next challenger. Uh, so before we discuss that, let's jump into these questions. It looks like we got quite a few. Um, I watched the Tanahashi Shingo match with a couple. Uh, this is from Viking Pain. He said, I watched the Tanahashi Shingo match with a couple of my friends who were casual WWE fans, and Tanahashi had them eating out the palm of his hand. 
He's still incredible, even at his age and bodily condition. Where would Tanahashi rank in your GOAT meter? And is he in your Mount Rushmore wrestling? Because he's in mine for sure. Yeah, I mean, Tanahashi is incredible. He's high up there on the, the, the GOAT meter. I think when it comes to, like, uh, you know, determining GOATs and Mount Rushmore, for me, it's just always hard because, you, for me, I have you kind of have to look at the era in the years. I, I feel like for certain eras, certain styles, it's kind of hard to compare, like, a Tanahashi to somebody, like a Luthez, you know. there There's different eras, different styles for the times, and I think there's different Rushmores and GOATs for different time periods. But, you know, in the, in the last 10 years or so, Tanahashi's definitely up there. Yeah, man. Uh, totally agree with you. Tanahashi being great. Um, he's on my – I mean, he's one of my all-time favorite wrestlers. So, yes, I think he's one of the greatest wrestlers. I think he's one of the all-time greatest storytellers that wrestling has ever known, amongst yeah. other things. But for Mount Rushmore, I'd say definitely New Japan. He's on my New Japan Mount Rushmore for sure. He's the fourth face. So, um but yeah, I agree with a lot of things Jeremy said there. Uh, so this next question says, are you guys ready for Evil's glorious second reign, or do you think they are really going to have Shingo walk into the G1 as champion in his first reign? Wouldn't that be a massive sign of confidence in him? Because I think Omega may have been the last guy to walk into the G1 as champ in his first reign, and will LIJ be able to handle the two top dogs in the faction for long? Well, um, yeah, I'm not expecting them to put the title on Evil or anything like that. So, <laughs> um, but as far as Shingo, I mean, I, right now it it looks like he may potentially be the guy that walks into the GNS champion. Um, the alternative, I guess, could be Evil. Oh boy, yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe somebody else on that second night. I don't know, but um, yeah, I think it is a, a big sign of confidence. I guess. But it feels like there's been a lot of people who've done it. I know Omega is the most recent, but since then, I mean, it's not like a rare thing is, is what I'm thinking. Yeah. But um, as far as like they've already shown their signs of confidence in him beyond this based on the guys he's beating, based on the main events they've let him have and everything like that. Like it's not even so much that he's going into the G1S champ, but more so the fact that he's getting – he's like achieving every time they give him a new opportunity. Right. And I, I think there's a lot of story options for him at main eventing Wrestle Kingdom. You could have Osprey come back and win the G1. You could have Abushi win the G1. You could have Okada win the G1. You could have Naito win the G1. There are a lot of challengers that they've kind of built in stories. You mentioned a lot of stories that have kind of set up this year of people who could come in and challenge him at Wrestle Kingdom. Yeah, definitely. Uh, next question from ready user underscore stress underscore evil back in the main event. Why are we still here just to suffer? <laughs> I wish I had a good answer for you. I'm not even really completely sure behind thinking here. Um, maybe it's a sign of confidence in evil. I felt like at this point they were kind of giving up on the experiment. Yeah. And so, so I'm a little surprised. I don't know if maybe this is them trying to get the last bit of juice out of the squeeze. You know, they're like, hey, we pushed it before. We might as well try to get one last big, you know, main event. Um, or maybe if it's them trying to reset on him and try again because they already have all this investment. I'm not sure really what, what they're trying to do, though. Yeah, especially if it being a main event at the MetLife Dome. You know, if this was like a, you know, power struggle or new beginning main event, I'd be like, whatever, fine. 
But, you know, being this big domain event with evil is definitely a head-scratcher. Uh, next question here from uh, Brad Michaels at The Real M Braids on Twitter. He says, fantastic main event and an, quote-unquote, interesting post-match angle. Either of you guys make like GCW fans and start throwing things when evil showed up or all of you or or all of your respective uh, positions still intact. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I didn't throw anything. I just like was like, I didn't even, I think I just went like, geez, this again, not again. Like, yeah, I, I was kind of disappointed, not surprised. I mean, he did beat Ishii the night before and he wasn't in the Rambo. Um, so they were kind of setting you up for that, and it's like we don't know what. I didn't even think of that. He wasn't in the Rambo. Wow. Yeah, yeah Dick Togo took his spot in the Rambo. Um, so it was kind of like you. It was if you pay attention, it was kind of coming, but yeah, was not a big fan of it. The thing is, like, I guess I'd be fine with it. I just, um, you know, it seems like these big shows, especially the stadium ones and domes, like those are so rare. So, you know. Out of this, like, this year's, like, four dome shows, we're going to have to watch, like, fucking evil in one of them. Like, that sucks. Yeah. Uh, next set of questions here from Rambone Slam Pig. How does it feel to have a show with multiple title matches, great ending performances, title changes, and no filler? It reminded me of what Dominion used to be like, not Wrestle Kingdom level, but a big show. With that said, why evil? For me, um, everything you mentioned there is accurate, but... Again, the crowd and atmosphere is the one thing that kind of keeps it out of that Dominion feel for me, you know, that we used to get annually, but uh, it's not far off. Yeah, overall, yeah. Like you said, this is going to be one one of our show of the year contenders, but if it, if it had that crowd, yeah, it would have been even another level. Um, his second question, are we going to hear the dulcet tones of Gino Gambino again? I think Kevin Kelly and Chris Charlton do a great job, but Gino really com- completes the team. I mean, they talk about him all the time, and there's no indication he's not going to be with the company going forward. I think it's just COVID-related, so yes, absolutely. Yeah, it sounds like he doesn't, he doesn't have a good home studio set up and has to drive somewhere, and the lockdown being really restricted, he's not allowed to leave the house, so he wasn't able to uh, do commentary here. Uh, then the last question here from Stale Burger Bun. Will Shingo be able to get an enjoyable match out of evil? No. <laughs> I... I mean, Shingo's fantastic, but if if Ishii can't, then I have no added faith that Shingo's going to be able to, you know, have this great classic with Evil, not this Evil. Yeah, like it would have to be no shenanigans. But we know there's going to be shenanigans. There's going to be Dick Togo coming out and choking Shingo out. We're probably it's probably going to be a Naito Evil re rewatch where you know you wait till the last second for like Sonata and Bushi to run out to save Shingo and Shingo's able to fight them off and hit the last of the dragon so i don't know i'm going to hate it no matter what and then our uh, last question here related to the dome from Reddit user the peaky blinder says Russell Grantsland at Tokyo Dome was from top to bottom bearing the dreadful pre-show rambo possibly the best card this year there wasn't a poor match out of the file on the show if there was a full cheering crowd do you think this would have elevated the show into an all-time Great Dome Show, i.e. Noah Destiny 2005. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think the show is great. I couldn't put it in the realm of like Destiny. It's one of the greatest wrestling shows of all time. But um, I mean, it's just what we said earlier. 
the show would have been viewed as a much it, it'd be viewed as a much more well-received show than it is currently that's all i don't think i could put it in the realm of like when you say like destiny 2005 you're talking about like wrestle Kingdom 9 wrestle Kingdom 10 like that's like rarefied air yeah so we do have some news on what is coming up next for uh the rest of the summer so um, one thing that was announced in the press conference, we have the return of the Super Junior Tag League. We're going to have a six-team tournament that will be starting on August 7th at the Summer Struggle event at Cork and Hall. It's a single block, six-team tournament. We have the Junior Tag Champs, ELP and Taiji Ishimori, Rapungi 3K, Despian Kanamaru, Taguchi and Wato, Eagles and Tiger Mask, and Gato and Dick Togo. Quite possibly my most loathed annual tournament. You know, in theory, I should love it because it's a you know it's a junior tag team title turn or you know junior tag league. Like, why wouldn't I love a bunch of junior tag teams like going at it? But man, the way this like division has always been and how it's been this year, like I don't know. I'm just not into it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure the matches will be fine, but no, this is. Compared to the Super Junior Tag Leagues we've had in the past, this is going to be pretty rough. Also, it's single blocks, so you know single blocks are already rough as well. You, you have Gato yeah, and Dick Togo. Fans of those. Yeah, you have Gato and Dick Togo as one of the teams. So, yeah, it's going to be going to be interesting here. Uh, we did have a question from Why Did You Do That, Bro? What do you think of Hiromu being cleared but not being in a Super Junior Tag League with Bushi? That's a good point. I didn't think about that. Um... Yeah, it seems like they're kind of going the reverse way they went for Romy the last time he came back from injury. So last time, like, they threw him on that random Road 2 show, and he lost um, in the build-up to the Dome against Osprey. Um, but here, they've kind of announced his next match, but they're kind of holding him off until that title match. Yeah, that's well put. That's exactly what it is. I wonder if it has anything to do with them not wanting him to have losses, even though I'm sure he wouldn't be the one directly taking the pinfalls in the uh, tag league matches. You know, just the mere fact that he's losing before his big title match, you know, at MetLife, I don't know. Yeah, that could be it. Also, I mean, who knows? Maybe there's something wrong with Bushi that we don't know about. That, yeah, there could be. A, he could be hurt as well, maybe in the Rambo. <laughs> he got, could or he needs time off, or... You know, they like to cycle those guys in and out, so I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, we also do have the, the rest of the schedule here for Summer Struggle, but I just want to point out some the matches here so we don't have to read through the whole cards. If you want to see the whole cards, everything is up on NJPW1972.com. Uh, this coming up Friday, we're going to have a Summer Struggle for main event elimination tag with LIJ, Shingo, Naito, Sonata, and Bushi against Evil Yujiro. Tajiri and ELP on Saturday, July 31st, another elimination match with uh, Chaos, Goto, Ishii, Yoshihashi, Sho, and Yo against Suzuki-gun, Taichi, ZSJ, Suzuki, Despi, and Kanomaru. Then on Sunday, August 1st, we have um, a very interesting show here. So the main event is the never open with six-man titles on the line, Goto, Ishii, and Yoshihashi defending against Dangerous Techers and Minoru Suzuki. And also on this show, we're going to have the farewell matches for Yotosuji and Yuya Yuimura. Yotosuji finally getting his match with Tetsuya Naito, and then Yuimura getting a match with Kazuchika Okada. 
Well, I guess that answers why Suchi never had the match with Naito during the uh, you know the trial series because that's going to be his final excursion match, which is great. And then Yumura versus Okada, kind of, I don't know, maybe are they trying to tell us something? Ace versus Ace? Maybe. <laughs> uh, so that should be a good show. And that never six-man match, my gosh, freaking Chaos versus Zuki Goon. Well, the crazy thing is, like, you think about, like, Dangerous Techers and how successful they are, and then prior to that, especially in Rep Pro, how successful... Zach and Suzuki were together. You put all three of them together. I mean, that, that's a really cohesive unit. I know the six man tag team champions have been like on such a tear, but I mean, who's the pin eater in that, you know, uh, Suzuki Gun trio? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think there is one. <laughs> yeah, that's the tough part. Like, um, so that, that match looks awesome. The, the like, only, just the, absolutely awesome. The only thing I could guess if Chaos is going to retain, you could have Goto or Yoshihashi pin Taichi or Saber since they're going to be coming up in the, the tag title match. That was kind of my thinking. Yeah, they they retain their titles. One of them gets the the pinfall over one of the tag champions, and that you know that gives them steam going into that title challenge. Yeah. And we had a question here from Hawaiian Punch BV. Where do you think Suji and Yamura are headed after they graduate? Um, well, you know, Suji wants to go to Mexico. It doesn't look like Mexico's open right now. Uh, we kind of talked about this in a group chat where I was like, maybe he goes to like America for the time being. And then later on, they move him to Mexico. They've done that with guys in the past. They did that sort of thing with like the Rapungi 3K guys and evil, you know, they start their excursion one place and then finish it out somewhere else. That is possible. So that's kind of what I'm thinking for him, maybe. Yeah, it seems like the U.S. has a lot of options for them to do. Also, they could work strong. Uh, they could work uh, dark, dark elevation. They could work Ring of Honor. They could work MLW. They could work West Coast Indies. I feel like New, uh, there's Impact. Uh, New Japan's been making a lot of partnerships. That the U.S. is kind of a, a good place to go. And then we're we're seeing you know Umino and Rev Pro. So you know the U.K. could be a destination as well. That's kind of what I'm guessing for you more is they maybe send them to Europe. Although, who knows? Maybe they both come to America. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, from about. Since it's the most open place right now. Right. I'd say from a COVID standpoint, yeah, it might be the safest place, you know, have them stay at the LA Dojo and then they can travel out from there. Yeah. We'll see. Um, But that, yeah, it's crazy. We've watched them on the coverage of this podcast since like day one. And now they're leaving, and like that's insane. <laughs> yeah. Um, then so August seventh through the seventeenth, we'll have the the Super Junior Tag League playing out on these Summer Struggle shows. We won't go through the whole lineup here, but if you want to see the full card again on NJPW1972.com, also in the coming weeks we'll be previewing and reviewing uh, the Super Junior Tag League matchups. We also got uh, three matches announced for the Wrestle Grand Slam in MetLife Dome for Sunday, September 5th. So this is night two of this uh, Wrestle Grand Slam in MetLife Dome. It's going to be Shingo versus Evil for the IWGP World Heavyweight title. Then the tag titles is going to be a three-way as Dangerous Takers will defend against Naito and Tanada and Goto and Yoshihashi. And then Robbie Eagles will defend against Hiromu Takahashi. 
Yeah, we'll do a review on this uh, down the road, but just on um, initial knee-jerk reactions. I mean, awesome, you know, trio of matches. Hard to know, you know, what what the like because they're doing two shows, right? Yeah. So yeah, it's September fourth and fifth in MetLife, and this is all happening on the fifth specifically. Yeah, these three matches are all night two. So that's kind of weird. I almost kind of felt like maybe they could have done these matches on like the fourth. And then through the course of the show, set up a, a, a return match the next night for whatever. But um, it just makes me wonder if this is what's playing out on the fifth. Obviously, this is the main card. What's the fourth going to look like? Is it just going to be preview matches? You know, they're kind of working with a a small crew. You know. Yeah, which kind of lays into this question from uh, CHM McGrath, nineteen eighty eight. Does any early predictions for Wrestle Grand Slam at MetLife Night One card? Which Japanese talent is it? Perform currently at NJPW would like to see compete in the G1 this year. Uh, so on night one, so so far on this night two, there's a couple of big names that are not here. We don't have Okada here. We don't have Tanahashi. We don't have Ibushi. Um, so there are some big names that could, we can potentially do something with on night one. I think we can get that. Osprey. Yeah, Osprey as well. He could be back um, for this. Um, Jay White could be back. Uh, this is after resurgence. So if Jay White retains the Never Championship, we could have a Never title match here as well. We could have a junior tag team title match on night one. Maybe the winner of the Super Junior Tag League will face uh, ELP and Taiji on night one. Yeah, I I agree with you there. I mean, there's a lot of options. It's hard to know. Yeah, we could probably, you, know, you could do like Cabo Kata for, for the main event and let them get that kind of main event style match they are capable of. Yeah, I mean, at this point with not a lot of like story elements, um, you know, occurring after the show. It's hard to know right now where we're going. I feel like as some of, hopefully, as some of these um, road two shows like play out, we might get a, a clear indication of what they're looking to do on the fourth as well. Right. Yeah, I'm sure they're they're gonna build uh, a lot of that up. Well, that's what I'm nervous about. Is maybe they don't. Because mm. we've seen some big shows in the past where, like, they didn't—they came in too cold. They didn't build enough stuff up on those Road Two shows. You know, it almost feels like they go into a Road Two series with like two or three feuds, and then they just preview those the whole way through. And very rarely does like a new story or feud occur during that tour. You know, right? Yeah. Well, they got six about six weeks. So let's let's see what they uh, get set up here for these. Uh, the rest of the night two and then all of night one. Uh, and then real quick, two uh, other news items. Uh, so this past week on Impact, there was a, a Jay White segment where he had a, a promo segment with uh, the Good Brothers and Kenny Omega and you know declining the Good Brothers uh, being back in Bull Club and the setup uh, Chris Bay coming out to help him after he was uh, given the Bull Club shirt. And uh, we had a question here from Viking Payne. Oddly enough, Jay White seems to be coming off as a babyface on the recent episode of Impact after confronting the Good Brothers. Is this a possible sign of where his character is going? Or is this just some Dragon Ball GT non-can stuff? And once he's back in Japan, he's he'll be a switchblade of old. Nah, you remember in 1997 when Bret Hart would get cheered in Canada? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Impact is just bizarre world. Mm. Yeah, Jay White hasn't changed at all. He's the same guy, but he's in... Uh, you know, he's an impact, so it's your <laughs> doesn't change anything. Yeah, and I mean, obviously going up against Kenny and the Good Brothers, who have kind of been the, the top heels and the top heel faction in Impact, 
kind of I can kind of see where he's coming off as a face, but I mean he's still being the same old switchblade and was very kind of cocky and why he wouldn't let the Good Brothers back in the Bullet Club. I saw one of the um, clips that they put up on NJPW World, and I was trying to catch up, see what was going on, and it seemed like it was his most recent statements from the TV taping, and he was like, you know, the reason I came here is for Dave Finley. And I'm like, no, bro, you walked out at the end of the pay-per-view to challenge Kenny Omega. I know you didn't say that necessarily, but, like, that's if if you were there to challenge Dave Finley, then why'd you walk at walk up on uh, Kenny Omega? You know, right? That just was weird to me. Like it's almost like they teased us, like they're going to give us this feud, and then now they're pivoting away from it. And he's like, "I'm here to chase Dave Finley." You know, he, he's trying to hide an impact. Yeah, they had to kind of shoehorn in the build for resurgence, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, that they're setting up this you know potential Kenny Omega match. So. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens there as that kind of story plays out. And one other thing here on July 31st, Shoto Umino will be taking on Doug Williams in Rev Pro. Big fan of Doug Williams. Think he's awesome. It should be a great matchup to test Umino. All right, and we got some questions here. Um, we'll start us off. Yeah. So we have a uh, Mitch MM22 says as we continue to see the cooperation between promotions with the Forbidden Door stuff. It is only a, is it only a matter of time before AAA's involvement complicates the CMLL NJPW partnership, or do you think things remain stable as long as AAA and New Japan don't work together directly? It's hard to know because we're not even sure what the current status of relationship between AAA or I'm sorry CMLL and New Japan even are, especially with like Paco Alonso's death and all the changes in management since that time, and then COVID as well. Um, things just kind of seem very precarious between the previous, you know, partners, that being CMLL, New Japan, Ring of Honor, and Red Pro. Um, and since they are, you know, New Japan is currently working with, like, Impact and various other companies, some of them have uh, affiliations and, and working relationships with AAA, which, you know, that doesn't fly for CMLL. But I don't know if that affects New Japan in any way, unless they're still like good partners with CMLL. And even then, like you mentioned, I think that as long as they don't have talent working angles and matches together, it should be fine. But um, it kind of depends on what the political climate looks like. It's hard to know. Yeah, and then we saw with you know CML, CMLL ending their relationship with Ring of Honor due to them having you know guys working for a rival promotion. I, I don't know if CMLL, if they if New Japan does do something, if they're going to, you know, kind of quickly pull the trigger or if they're just kind of like, as long as they don't send their guys to AAA specifically or do like a co-branded New Japan AAA thing, I think they might be okay. Well, you know, we've got the situation where like one of these Impact pay-per-views is coming up and they, they showcased all the different brands. So it doesn't even have to be like something that they co-promote together. It could be something where like, they have ta- they both companies have talent showing up on the same card of a third party, you know. Right. And then it's like, well, then they can't work against each other. Probably that would be the situation if they're trying to appease CMLL. Right. The other thing too is like, CMLL said that they don't want you know that they were cutting off the relationship with Ring of Honor, but Ring of Honor has come out afterwards and been like, nah, we're cool, <laughs> we're straight. <laughs> Oh, so who knows if maybe they're trying to work to even repair that and smooth it over, you know? 
Yeah. It might be like when someone like breaks up online and they like change their status, but then like later it changes right back. Yeah. It, it changes to it's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> That's what Ring of Honor's been on. It's complicated for a little while. Now. Like, we we ain't done. It's just complicated, okay? Yeah. Uh, next question here from Viking Payne says it seems like Brian Danielson is pretty keen on working for New Japan. So how would you book him and who would you have him work with first? I don't know. I'd probably have him work with Okada since Okada's like the ace and you know, there's no titles involved. That would be like a dream match. And that's probably what I do, is just straight out the gate. Just get him involved with Okada. They, you know, remember when they almost did that with uh it's not exactly the same, but that brief time Rey Mysterio is there. Yeah. And it felt like, holy shit, you know? And I don't think Okada was champion then either. And it was like, dude, they might, you know, you could do something just like that with Brian. Right. Like you mentioned, that'd be kind of a, kind of a great non-title program to do. And so you don't have to kind of worry about Brian coming in immediately, you know, getting a title shot or winning the belt. Uh, but eventually, I mean, Dragon versus Dragon kind of rides itself. Um, and doing the eventual Shingo, uh, Brian Danielson match would be awesome. Uh, next question from Wiz Factor. Thoughts on the buy rates for tickets to Resurgence and Fighting Spirit Unleash? If New Japan is underperforming and selling live tickets, is it just because of the card or the fact that New Japan has lost too many Western fans to other promotions? Is it too late for New Japan to make it big in America? Also, if hindsight is 2020, was trying to run Russell Dynasty in MSG a mistake? Oh, a lot of questions. Um... I, I haven't heard anything about them underperforming. It looks like they just about sold out the TV taping and they've only got, you know, what, three, four hundred tickets left for the pay per view? There's almost about, I think, it's like, like 10 to like 10 to 15 percent of the tickets left for the pay per view. Yeah. Yeah. So that means that they've sold like 90 percent of the tickets and they're probably going to have a big walk up crowd. So they'll, you know, even if they don't sell out, they're virtually sold out. I mean, right. So I don't. I don't know what the thing about them underperforming selling life. I know they have in the past, but for this particular event, it doesn't sound like they are. Yeah, I mean, I was very happy with how they the tickets they sold for this. Because, you know, again, kind of coming in cold, having been in the U.S. for a while. They've lost some Western fans. There's not a lot of the big, there's no Tanahashi, no Okada, no Ibushi on this show. Um, and they sold, you know, almost, you know, they sold over 2,000 tickets. Yeah. Um, as far as if it's too late for them to make big in America, I mean, not necessarily. I think we've always talked about a TV deal is probably the primary goal. If they want to make money here, it needs to be a lucrative television deal. But even still, I mean, provided, you know, wrestling doesn't turn into something other than what Tony Khan and them are asking for it to be if there's room for multiple companies to kind of like coexist and work together um, all at the same time, then there might even be a possibility that like New Japan can coexist along a, along with like an AEW down the road, you know? Right, yeah, and also I think, you know, having U.S. title and, you know, New Japan feuds being featured on Dynamite will help in the time being until New Japan can get their own TV show, and honestly, Dynamite's very popular right now, so New Japan being linked with them can help out. Well, well, market share's always a concern, you know, and you don't want to oversaturate the market, but, you know, my initial thinking was when AEW kind of became a thing, and Ring of Honor didn't, you know, pull the trigger and potentially trying to take 
or I'm sorry, Sinclair didn't pull the trigger trying to take Ring of Honor like national when they had the chance to. Um, once AEW became a thing, it kind of felt like the U.S. expansion of New Japan was due because, I mean, you had a major player that kind of took up that space that either yourself or Ring of Honor was gunning for. But now it feels like if there is the ability for cohesion to be the case, they all might be able to just coexist, you know, and, and grow together. Right. Uh, as far as Russell Dynasty possibly being a mistake, I mean, obviously it's kind of hard to say that. I mean, who knows? I would assume for that they would have had, you know, the full roster coming in. You would have had Okada, Tanahashi, and all those guys. I feel like they would have tried to put together – Universal Kingdom size card would have sold out again. Uh, it's hard to say, but everything's really. I mean, that's all COVID based. It's hard to. I mean, was anything a mistake that you were planning to do before COVID hit? Like, I guess in hindsight, yes, but no one knew that. So yeah. Uh, next set of questions here from Dom Homie One Hundred One. He says, "What are some great non Wrestle Kingdom dome shows to watch?" Um, <laughs> I mean, that's a great question. There's a lot of, um, you know, non Wrestle Kingdom Dome shows because I mean, they've run, they've run that, that building so many times, but like what we're at Wrestle Kingdom, what, 15, I guess this, this coming year is 16, I believe. Yeah. 16. Okay. I mean, I don't know how many shows they have, it, it, but it's also hard to like know exactly which shows to nominate. There's so many of them. Um, I remember the Orange Crushes being good. The 1989 inaugural uh, Dome Show with heavyweight title tournaments really good. Um, really partial to the uh, 92 and 91 um, WCW Super Shows. Those are really good. Um, I mean, bro, like there's quite a few Dome Shows. I mean, I would I recommend like just going online and kind of looking at uh, Cage Match and seeing what they have like viewed as some of the better you know dumb shows for new japan uh the next question with the rumors of cm punk and brian danielson reportedly debuting with AEW, do you guys think that it's possible that we may see see guys like moxie and archer take part in this year's g1 because the spotlight would be on other superstars in AEW. that's a great theory i don't know if that's the case but i mean that'd be that would be helpful in allowing something like that to even be a possibility yeah, I think that would be great, but it sounded like, at least according to Dave, that everybody who's in the G1 is kind of already there and kind of started their quarantine or kind of already in the country. I'm not sure if that's 100% true or not, but if you could get Moxley and Archer in, I think that would be great to kind of freshen them things up and uh, make a G1 a little exciting this year. Uh he also asked, any thoughts on the Nick Gage versus Matt Cordona match and the aftermath of the match? I didn't see the match, but um, I thought the aftermath was hilarious. Um, I'm, I'm happy that they're having some success and uh, happy that Mark, Matt Cardona is kind of one of those guys that's, you know, making the most of his uh, opportunity outside of the uh, WWE, you know? Yeah, um, I didn't see the match either, but I'll say I saw the, the post-match where the fans were throwing uh, stuff in the ring at Cordona, and then, you know, Dave had his comments, and GCW turned his tweet into a t-shirt, and the GCW fans now hate Dave Meltzer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, we talked about the cardboard bed thing. Uh, next question from Rich Latta. He says, question for Josh, Rocky, Marciano, overrated or nah? I think he's trying to get me worked up and wants me to go off. We don't got time for that, Rich, but uh, I will answer the question briefly in the sense that, yes, I believe as an all-time great heavyweight, Rocky Marciano is vastly overrated. <laughs> if anyone wants to uh, look into that more or ask me questions you know, the following weeks, that's fine too. Uh, but we're we're pushing up on time. Yeah. Do you want to hold off on these fighting UFC questions from Hawaiian Punch VV to next week? Yeah. Go ahead. Let's push those to the next week, just because we're running late. And let's uh, do recommend a match. We'll get the hell out of here. Yeah. So uh, last week I recommended you to watch uh, Prince Devitt versus Ricochet from the 2013 Best of the Super Juniors. What do you think? Really, really enjoyed this match. Um, you know, just a so awesome to see both of these guys and their athletic primes going up against one another in a really, really hot Cork and Hall crowd. Um, you know, plus the early days of the Bullet Club, um, how they kind of interacted, ran, you know, their defense on the outside. Um, Ricochet was just fucking awesome here. Like, he did so many. I mean, he's still incredible, but like the amount of like, high flying he was doing in this match was really awesome. And, you know, tra- I've trained with the guy briefly uh, in the past and like, I've never seen any individual have that kind of control over their body the way he does with his balance and, you know, everything like that, that was on full display here. Some of the flips and dives and jumps and somersaults, and backhand springs, everything like this guy was just on it. Um, they went out there, had a really awesome junior match. In fact, this match, in a certain sense, kind of made me um, regret that we haven't had too much of that going on in the junior division lately, you know, and mm. how much I miss, like, the crowd reactions to, like, big, extravagant, like, you know, high-flying spots. But ultimately, it was a story of Ricochet maybe being better, but uh, Prince Devitt being smarter and then having the um, benefit of the outside interference to kind of, you know, cut off Ricochet. But at the end of it all, I kind of expected the Bull Club to really run some bullshit and cost him the match. And instead, it was just like Prince Devitt outsmarted him, caught him on the top rope, hit him with the bloody cross from the top rope, and, and pinned him for the one, two, three. So it was actually fairly clean, cleaner than I expected it to be. And when I kind of contrasted this match and how the Bull Club operated back then compared to how like that evil match we, we discussed was and it's night and day like you know one of them is entertaining and and you know fits the narrative of a of a well-told story the other one is just derivative you know right but uh yeah liked this match a lot um probably four stars that's about where i was at with it yeah awesome um so that is gonna take us to my recommended match actually one last thing i wanted to talk about so we we kind of glossed over this but i want to get your opinion um, when Evil came out and challenged for the title and it is now getting a title shot, there was a lot of um, talk about the fact that he has had so few wins mm. since he dropped the title. And, you know, um, there was like one camp that was discussing how like he shouldn't even be getting title shots based on his record. And then another camp that was basically saying that like people don't care when a challenger comes in cold unless it's evil because it's evil 
you know, and the match isn't going to be good. But they'll they'll give the pass for like say Kotobushi, for instance. Yeah, I don't know. It's difficult. I mean, I think there's both camps have a point, um, but I, I feel like challengers don't come in as cold as evil comes in. And even if they come in cold, at least they they probably have been doing programs that with guys that kind of make sense why they would end up in a title picture next. Like Evil was like wrestling Yano not too long ago in, in a KOPW match. Like he was like, a, like pretty much like a, close to the bottom of the card. I mean, never six man title. Like he was like so far away from a title picture. It's like even more jarring that like out of nowhere he's. Back. It was like Ishii was like the first kind of like singles feud he had in a, a long time. Yeah, he's like um, one of those charts that you see where it's like up and then down and then up and down. Like that's him literally right now. Yeah. Um. Anyways, um, just want to get your thoughts on that. Appreciate it. So, the um, recommended match of the week this week is the December fourteenth, two thousand tag team match between Masanobu Fuchi and Toshiaki Kawada against uh, T- Takashi Iska and Yuji Nagata. Mm. Um, this is a match that was that occurred on the, uh, the second judgment card from December 14th of that year. Um, rated five stars, Wrestling Observer Newsletter. Nice. One of the best tag team matches in New Japan history. Well, looking forward to checking that out. Checking out a uh, young, non-crazy Iska. Yeah, this is like sheer Iska. <laughs> nice. Well, looking forward to that, and that is going to wrap things up for us here. Next week, we'll be back to review uh, the latest shows in the Summer Struggle Tour. So, if you enjoyed today's show, please consider making a donation by visiting socialsuitflex.com/donate and click on the donate button under the Keeping Strong Style logo. Make sure you connect with us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at KI Strong Style. The network is at Social Suplex. I am at Jeremy L. Donovan. Follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Social Suplex. Or you can join us in the Wrestling Squared Circle group, facebook.com slash group slash Wrestling Squared Circle. On Instagram, we are at Social Suplex. And on Reddit, I am the pro black guy. Y'all just keeping a strong style. You can email me, Jeremy, at socialsuplex.com. Check out all the other shows here on the Social Suplex Podcast Network. We have One Nation Radio, hosted by Rich and James. We have Grave Consequences with Caleb and Maserati. Eight Bed Suplex with Josh, number two. All Things Elite with Floyd and Austin, and the Great Match Generator with Danny. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and review. And we will catch you next week on Keeping a Strong Style, the Ace of Podcasts. Thank you for listening to Keeping It Strong Style. We'll see you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.